0: Welcome back to Game Study Study Buddies. Your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, where we make it hopefully understandable and uh, fun and interesting, and we all learn something along the way. That's the new tagline for the show. I really
1: just kind of threw it together, but I think it's going to work. I'm Cameron. I'm Michael, and I have never learned a single thing along the way, so I'm hoping to start. Well,
0: that, it was it wasn't part of the catchphrase before.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean that's what I'm getting at. Like, this is a new rule. We're all learning things now. I've been trying hard not to learn things because I thought that's what you're supposed to do as a podcast host. Yeah, we're really kind of like positive law
0: people over here. If it doesn't say it <laughs> directly, then we don't do it. Uh, it's a it's a big part of our uh, our methods. <laughs> <laughs> study buddies HQ. Oh, this is supported by the Range Touch Network. Uh, you can check out all the cool stuff that we do all across that network. And if you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash range touch. There's a little description down in the episode. No, there's a link down in the description of the episode. <laughs> there we go. There is also a description, I guess, <laughs> Yeah, of the episode. If you're into that as well. Uh, this episode is on the race card. Um, Michael, you want to, you want to fill us in by, by Tara Fickle.
1: Yeah. So the race Um, card is a 2019 book from New York university press. It is, as you say, by Tara Fickle, who is currently the assistant professor of English at university of Oregon, where she specializes in Asian and Asian American literature, digital humanities, game studies, and graphic fiction and comics. There's a little bit of all of that in here. Yeah, no, it's like Uh, every, every topic there shows up in this book. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't expecting—I um, guess there's not a whole lot of analysis of
0: comics in here, but there is a comic that that is featured pretty heavily, and I was um, maybe surprised by that a little bit. Yeah, this is in the post-millennial pop series. Um, we have talked multiple times on the show, Michael, about the notion of a series— um a, in a press and would you know i've cut it out every single time
1: <laughs> uh, so i'm not gonna bother this time <laughs> i was wondering because i'm like we've, i know we've talked about book series before so i have no idea where you're going to take this and mm-hmm. okay uh
0: yeah we talk about it for about 10 minutes every time a little peek behind the curtain for everyone uh, we talk for about it for about 10 minutes and it makes the beginning of the show really drag um, and so I cut it out every time, <laughs> um, and I'm going to do that probably to this too, but maybe not, maybe I'll leave it so people can, uh, can hear about it. But, um, I don't know, big ideas about this book, Michael, what's, what's this about? It's the race card from gaming technologies to model minorities. It's, it's got, uh, the cover is, a, ye- a yellow, kind of like a neon yellow with, mm-hmm. um, uh, a cards against humanity type card.
1: Yeah, I thought that was really interesting that the cover is set up, um, I think, specifically to evoke Cards Against Humanity. But Cards Against Humanity does not show up in this book. No, it doesn't. It was surprising to me. Uh, And it... Uh. I'm not going to say it's a missed opportunity because like Fickle talks about what she wants to talk about. I think uh, that is clear. Um, I don't know what Cards Against Humanity necessarily would have added to this, um, but this book more so than other books that we've talked about on this show is dealing with tabletop and uh, analog games sort of more explicitly, like literally like actual card mm. games are are going to show up here uh, more frequently than I think in a, a lot of our readings, which tend to f- tend to focus on video games but we've got both analog and digital going on in this one
0: Mm -hmm. and and, i mean the whole first part of the book deals with and i guess the whole book in general but really the first part of the book uh dives into it on gambling which to be frank really doesn't show up that much in game study study buddies uh books and i think that you know um when we when we talk about the intro, we'll talk a little, little bit more about this, but Fickle is really interested in this book, I think, in addressing topics and angles that other game studies books, or game studies as a field maybe is more appropriate, the game studies as a field is less uh, interested in or has kind of purposefully cut out of its discussion in order to, I don't know, make the argument run better or to talk about medium specificity or things like that. So this book is wide-ranging. It moves across a lot of different objects. It's uh, drawing connections between those, Um, and sometimes jumping between metaphoric language around games to actually played games to theories of I don't know, uh, American existence in particular, kind of um, in, in American history and American ideology that are dependent on games, but not even necessarily using the language of games. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, something that I, that I really felt like <laughs> when I was reading it um, is that I think sometimes this book is too smart for me Um, in the sense that, uh, and I'm not saying that, like, that seems like a weird cop out to be like, well, it's too smart. I don't know. Um, (laughs) This book is too uh, smart
1: for us. Episode over. That's as much as we can say.
0: (laughs) No, you know what? Huge mistake that we made that commitment to learning at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) If we hadn't done that, we'd be scot-free. We'd be able to (laughs) zip right out of here. But, um, but, but I say, I, I say that because that, you know, I think as a, as a writer and as a reader, the two ways. Uh, um as those things, I think that I am best at questions of scale in a broad sense i I, I have a very I, I think I'm very good at understanding kind of macro and micro systems and how those things run into each other and that overwhelmingly comes from like the huge amount of Marxist theory that I've read and people trying to square, you know, kind of based in super structure questions over the years in radically different ways, right? So I'm really good. And when I'm writing the thing that I am paying attention to the most, I think is how does the big thing show up in the smallest possible thing? And how does the smallest possible thing change the shape of the big one? Um, you know, those are the the questions I am attentive to. I'm not really as attentive in my writing or or in my reading in a general sense about Movement b- between domains. Um, so when when figurations or ideas or concepts show up in radically different systems, but but kind of maintain their core to them, I, I have a really hard time following the movement of those things. And you know, I've I've read enough academic books to to know that that's not a problem that everyone has. And so um, I think this is a book that really is about seeing certain figurations or certain ideas and certainly certain ideas around, like, the Orient in particular in the latter half of the book, of watching it move across domains. Uh, And I I just have to be, you know, clear here at the top that I have a really hard time with that, Um, you know, and I think part of the Game Studies study buddies... um, as a as a show is about kind of being open about those things right that we approach things as readers differently and i have a really hard time just keeping track of how what the shape of the thing as it moves through different domains so if people hear me kind of struggling through the book or, or struggling to kind of articulate how the argument is moving i don't think that's a problem with fickle i think that has to do with me and my kind of disciplinary training and also just the way i think um I don't think of these kind of like kernels that move like that. I, I, I kind of think of things zooming in and out quite a lot. So that, that was the big thought I had while reading the book. It was like, I just don't really think this way uh, in some ways. Uh, but it also makes it really engaging to read uh, and really exciting to read, to watch someone who can clearly do this so well um, and clearly is thinking in ways that I just, I just don't think um, and doing it, you know, appropriately and, and in really interesting ways.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I necessarily have um, as much of a meta move to make. I, I would maybe, I don't know, there's no good way to evaluate this, but I would say maybe I'm a slightly better at you than watching these things migrate uh, between, like watching sort of ways of thinking or uh, uh, sort of tropological arguments migrate uh, into new arenas. Um, maybe I'm slightly better at that, or maybe it's more to do with the fact that I am straight up trained as a literature person. And I think uh, that's the the background that Fickle comes out of as well, right? She is in an English department. Um, and I think it's a very literary studies move that this book makes, just sort of up top, right? One of the, one of the claims that Fickle makes here is that uh, the ways, well, one of the ways that Americans have thought about um and spoken about and articulated race, um, right. One of the one of the ways that race happens to to touch back on our earlier book from uh, Lisa Nakamura and Cybertypes, right? If race is a thing that happens, one of the things that makes race happen or has historically made race happen. Uh, is games in kind of several registers not only what types of people play what types of games but how do literally how do gaming metaphors slip into the ways the discourses of race in america and what is sort of the the knock-on effect of that um and the closest kind of Touch point I can think of here for this show would be like Gina Bloom's book uh, *Gaming the Stage*, which is I don't know maybe something like fifteen episodes back, uh, but that's an episode that's an episode that is a book I should say, where Bloom is looking at representations of board games in early modern plays, and then deducing from the ways that those games are working in early modern plays but also how those games worked and were thought about outside of the theater right as actual games to sort of arrive at a way of thinking about uh the theater itself as kind of an emergent uh medium Mm -hmm. that is to say uh you know the the things grow out of games or the language of gaming uh, has an effect on the world and the ways that we conceptualize the, the entities within it. Um, and I think that in, in a very broad sense, that is a similar claim that fickle is making here that I think is really cool. And one of the things she says in the introduction, right, is that game studies by and large uh, just starts with people talking like I, you know, Kawa or Huizinga or whoever being like, let's talk about play in games. And then moving forward from that and never really having a moment where they stop and look back and think, well, how were how were other people like how is the language of gaming circulating through a culture in a particular time? And what were the effects of that? Um, And I think that that is a a really interesting um, and unique angle that Fickle is taking here
0: yeah well, I think we can we can probably just dive right into that then if you want to um I, you know i I agree just to to uh, comment on the last thing you said there i one hundred percent agree with the kind of connection to the Gina Bloom book, and I think that I struggled with this in some places in the same way that I struggled in that episode when when talking about it. Uh, or while reading that book I guess is where I struggled um but the evidence of it <laughs> is in the episode of of uh, you know exactly what you're saying I think there must be it must be a kind of question of training in some ways right like that's all to say I think you've you've gotten us uh started on the introduction um which starts with Pokemon Go
1: yeah and specifically uh with a very unfortunate and sad event uh early on in Pokemon Go's kind of lifestyle or lifestyle life cycle the pokemon go lifestyle Um, (laughs) the pokemon uh
0: i you know early in 2016 (laughs) i moved to a pokemon go lifestyle i have no furniture in order to more easily afford uh uh, bulbasaurs appearing in my living room
1: (laughs) (laughs) no furniture only bulbasaurs um yeah yeah so uh uh anyway um if you, if you listener can remember way back to early 2016, uh, one of the discussions that came up around Pokemon Go uh, after its kind of big break into the mainstream uh, was about the ways that that game, which if you're somehow not familiar, allows you to use your phone to kind of have an augmented reality experience where you're seeing little Pokemon uh, all over the world, and there's like a it's you know integrated with Google Maps to a certain extent and. Uh, you go places and you catch Pokemon and you have Pokemon battles. Um, but the entire thing is predicated upon someone being able to move through and around space, right? Like actual literal, like go downtown to where the Dunkin' Donuts is because that's that's where, I don't know, for some reason, the Dunkin' Donuts downtown is where all the dudes spawn or something. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that became clear very early on in, in kind of that media cycle was that not every person can move through space in the same way. Um, and this is very particularly important with regard to race in that, uh, you know, people of color, uh, are treated more discriminatorily. Uh, they face, uh, different types of reactions to people who are in those spaces and there is a story it was the the first casualty of pokemon go um of a uh i'm going to read from the book here uh, an asian american grandfather uh who was shot for alleged trespassing while playing near a virginia country club um and the you know the the resonance there of the country club as kind of a particularly white waspy enclave. Uh, I I think is you know one of the starting points here. Uh, what mm-hmm. happens when a, a you know person of color comes up to a country club and gets shot? <laughs> like what is being enacted there? Um, what mm-hmm. is kind of the legacy there, and what does it have to do with the fact that the um, man was playing a game?
0: Yeah. Um... Which, you know, Pokemon Go shows up again later in the book, but it it shows up here in order to make, I mean, obviously to to present the example you just talked about, but ultimately to kind of present the core argument of the book, which on um, page three gets, uh, gets kind of really... Um, shortly defined and not shortly as in like poorly, but this is the most condensed definition. It's about examining the infrastructure of gaming as itself, a raced project. So Mm -hmm. in, in infrastructure here, I think of, uh, you know, in the same way that, you know, uh, Wilderson might say the word rebar, right? Mm -hmm. It's the, the building blocks of this thing of, of gaming as um, a pastime and economy, uh, a series of metaphors, emotive governments of life, all those different things, and that shot through with race, uh, you know, uh, kind of Swiss cheese style, uh, at every turn. Um, you know, on page seven, after working through the Pokemon Go example, example, Fickle says, Pokemon Go, in short, does not so much represent race as model its runtime behavior, meaning that when you play Pokemon Go, you are um operating within the rules you're you're playing race in some regards right Mm -hmm. and not in the sense of taking on you know racial identities or whatever but you are operating within a gamified space that is using or 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 is you know um um not co-terminus but (laughs) uh, has the same location right as Mm -hmm a uh, as a whole system of racialization, racial ordering of the world, a geography of race, you know, as you were talking about who gets to go where and under what conditions and who is violently uh, repelled or or um you know uh, oppressed mm-hmm. from those locations um and that's kind of what the whole the whole book follows through on, right What are the different mechanisms and modes and um, ways that we see that happening historically um, in the contemporary time period and in um, the the very design of games themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, specifically, the book is going to focus on uh, Asian and Asian American uh, identities uh, with regard to these questions, um, because one of the other kind of points that the book wants to make and that fickle wants to make is that uh gaming is particularly bound up in the construction of like the asian or asian american ethnic identity
0: yeah 100 percent. that uh uh, fickle says you know that race in the united states is often talked about in uh, in terms of what's called the black white binary um and uh she's interested in what the figuration of Asianness itself, you know, how does Asian-ness appear in these kind of, um, moments of racial policing? How does it appear, uh, in representation in games, not in the sense of like people who are represented, but, um, how does it inform the kind of structure of games? Um, how does it in, how is it enlivened by and in conversation with metaphors around mm-hmm. gaming? That's a huge part of the first part of the book, I think. Um, On on page 10, uh, Fickle writes, Gaming technologies, whether a game controller, a pair of dice, or even a metaphor like a stacked deck, all function as standalone operating systems that allow and quite often require users to operate the meaning-making machine in question without possessing detailed knowledge of its inner workings. And the, the meaning-making machine, right, is raced. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it carries racial assumptions with it. So when you are playing the game, you are playing, again, you know, um, you, you are playing a racialized system. Uh, you're operating within that rule set. Uh, you know, very similar to something that, you know, or the things that we read in Kashana Gray a few episodes ago. Um, but talking in a kind of different register and talking from the perspective of a different discipline. You know, Gray's work is much closer to sociology than, than Fickle's work. Um and so these are I think these two books share some assumptions about uh, about how um games and play and race run into each other and how those are racialized uh but ultimately are focusing on different types of artifacts and different kinds of um you know places where that logic shows up
1: mm-hmm. and um, uh, a an additional part that I think maybe our discussion might focus on um a little less just because we i I'm going to guess that we have not as much to say about this uh but to put the claim out there uh fickle talks about how uh this this idea of gaming as kind of a, a master key or a master trope um for thinking through race and specifically like asian american um, racial or ethnic identity uh is that she concludes the introduction talking about uh sort of the the fraught issue within Asian American literature and Asian American studies about sort of authenticity. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, this is, this is me kind of reverse engineering because this is not my field, right. I am an early modernist. Um, but, uh, the, the sort of internal kind of disciplinary question of like when, when creating kind of ethnic literatures or like a, a field of study of ethnic literatures is like, what counts here? right? Um, Mm -hmm. Whose stories are being added? Whose are we kind of ignoring? Uh, uh, What are sort of the political choices being made by people who are choosing to uphold certain examples of these literatures and and not others? Um, And this seems for Fickle to uh, become its own kind of like gamified space in that Uh, She quotes a a writer to an introduction of I think an anthology of Asian American literature uh, talking about saying talking about authenticity as a sign that quote one is in the game and must be taken seriously and that's a quote from that introduction. Uh, Hmm. and so that, this is an example of kind of that trope talk that we were, we were getting at where there's not an actual game here to be unpacked, uh, but fickle zeroes in on just this chance, uh, kind of idiom, right? Almost kind of a dead idiom. Like no one, I think, uh, perks up when they hear the phrase, ah, skin in the game. Um, Mm -hmm. but she takes that. And she's like, well, what does it mean if we start th- like, if we are thinking about, like, uh, uh, the construction of this ethnic identity or or its literatures and its culture as a game, what are kind of the assumptions that are getting burrowed into the ways that we are interacting with each other and the ways that we are thinking about ourselves and how we present ourselves to the world? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are, throughout these chapters, there are going to be uh, sort of, kind of in the back half of not every chapter but a lot of the chapters uh she gets into readings of Asian American literature uh and uh thinks through some of these questions. Yeah,
0: and as you were saying at the beginning, I I I don't have a lot to say about this because I haven't read these novels. Um neither of I but, but, Yeah, I'm both not a literary scholar nor do I do Asian studies or Asian American studies either um and uh i mean i wrote the names of lots of things down it seemed very cool seemed very interesting mm-hmm. um but certainly not my zone uh I, again feeling a lot like gina Bloom's spoke where i was like yep these exist i'm i'm, I'm certain of it mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, these are plays <laughs> I, indeed <laughs> i'll trust everyone on this one <laughs> yes. um but, you know, we get, you know for, for game studies, the reason we say that, right, in case this is your first episode, is that, you know, for games that we've played, we can kind of get down uh, in deep and then, you know, kind of talk about uh, what's going on there. And uh, for, you know, plays that you have studied, you know, Michael, we can get down deep and talk about the specificity here. Um, I, I was not even aware of Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, right, before this started. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I can in no way... Uh, get down in the specifics of whether it is uh, satirical or not, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, Which which is an interesting argument. If you are interested broadly in these kind of topics, I think there's probably a whole lot here for you in this book. Um, but, but we just can't go super deep on it.
1: Right. Um, and yeah, and I just want to bring know. it up in case someone was more interested in those questions. Just so you know, they're talked about here. I don't think we, we are equipped to talk about them um, in very deep detail. Yeah, so I mean, if we're just to finish off the introduction um a lot of the things that come up in the introduction are kind of previews of later chapters but one that i think will be especially uh kind of familiar or potentially hopefully interesting to to long listeners uh is when fickle gets into um, a couple of things one is the early split in game studies between ludologists and narratologists which we've talked about before, Um, you know, are games primarily uh, uh, sort of systems and rules or are they uh, modes of representation or, or, you know, however those questions end up getting articulated. Uh, And what then happens uh, if touching on something I said earlier, actually, if the field of game studies takes as kind of its founding moment or, or I guess I should say modern game studies, contemporary game studies, uh, it is so wrapped up in kind of this origin story of in the beginning uh, all was chaos and then ludologists and narratologists kind of emerged and they, you know, had their thing, they like battled it out like the Titans and the Olympian gods. Um, and from this game studies is born. Uh, this is all me, like, by the way, she's not making these comparisons. This is me being flip. No. Um, but uh the question that fickle then asks uh is you know if game studies is only interested in kind of this version of itself um what are we kind of missing if we look at or if we're not looking at the ways that games have always kind of been embedded in ways of thinking like nationality and especially national culture Mm -hmm. um And there's, like, uh, here what she says is, uh, the embedded mechanics of video games and the overlooked predominance of game tropes in national culture as the two ends of the spectrum of gaming technologies share a far greater ideological and historical intimacy than has been acknowledged. Uh, And this reminds me very much of... uh, some of the stuff we said in our episode on C.L.R. James's Beyond a Boundary, um, because that is, uh, you know, highly recommend you go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. But that is a book where uh, it, that predates the whole luteology narratology thing, in uh, to to James, it is no question at all that games are embedded in, like, the national project, right? That is, like, that is almost a first principle for him. Um, And it's something that we point out that if game studies traced itself back to James rather than limiting itself to uh, people like Johann Zuzinga or uh, Roger Kawa, then... uh, you know, maybe the ludology narratology debate would not have emerged in quite the way it did because uh, what Fickle ends up saying is that it is precisely in the way that Huizinga and Kalwa mishandle this question of how games produce culture that results in kind of a ludology narratology debate of of this idea that um, game, like, that that form and content can be separated in that way.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, reading this whole book, that this kind of maneuver of the argument—we're going to get a whole chapter on this kind of critique of Huizinga and Kawa that I, that I think is fascinating. I think it's a a really good and nuanced critique of working through um, some of the issues that you know that we had uh, in the episodes that we recorded on that. But the structure of this argument really reminds me of like a competitive debate argument, and I really <laughs> wonder if Fickle was involved in competitive debate. Um, you know that's that's not. I don't think that's something that like shows up on someone's bio, right? So, <laughs> so uh, there's no way to know. I mean, other than, um, I guess if uh, if they tell you. But it, it has this kind of like re- uh, reading, uh, reading the argument itself so intently and specifically that you can flip it inside out, because mm-hmm. um, that's exactly what happens with Huzing and Kawawa here. Uh, Fickle literally turns their their philosophies inside out in order to talk about how or in order to demonstrate how much they just mishandle the question of, of uh, you know, how games operate and how they, how they, they exist in the world. Um, but, uh, but yeah, absolutely. You know, I, We always want to hold it down for CLR for, uh, James. And uh, yet again, this is a moment where CLR James would you know, give us a lot of building blocks toward um, uh, a more robust theorization of games that would be helpful for us even now. Mm -hmm. Um and uh yeah, we'd skip a lot of uh skip a lot of issues here. Um I I guess two other things before we we uh leave the introduction here. The the one one would be that um there there's a short kind of analysis of the race card itself Mm -hmm. um that that I think is emblematic of the kind of really interesting thinking going on in this book, right? So Fickle reads the notion of the race card, you know, like the the figure of speech, you know, someone is playing the race card. And then ask the question, well, what is the race card, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what does it function like? Does it, what kind of, is it analogous to a real card in a card game, right? You play it like you play an ace, um, right? Or, you Mm -hmm. know, what is it? (laughs) Uh, And uh, she ultimately comes to, to, to the conclusion that there's no logic to it. It's figurative language that doesn't, neatly place itself into either the world or into any other game which is in fact exactly how um, uh, language functions within games themselves. Games are interior focused right they speak to themselves and so the race card only makes sense within um, the kind of aesthetic and linguistic formulation of the race card and contemporary race.
1: Well and then Um, the the sort of like the knock-on effect of that as I've called it before right the the thing that happens with saying like oh uh you could play the race card or so and so played the race card uh it is precisely in the fact that that doesn't refer to anything that uh this is not fickle's terminology right but this is going to be a thing that she kind of returns to uh the language of gaming has this very strange um perverse is not quite the right word but it, it depending on the context it might be perverse uh like logic effect Like there's something about saying like the race card that uh, even though it is not like there is no game that's being referred to, it nevertheless uh, projects a world in which we are all playing a game and race Mm -hmm. becomes an asset, right? A thing that could be condensed into a card and played. And that is not really how this works, but it nevertheless like uh, puts us into a position where that's um, like it, it, it. it almost, uh, incites a kind of like phenomenological position, right. <laughs> of, yeah. um, and, and that's exactly what this book is trying to get at is, is how, um, those kinds of the, the gaming world suddenly gets projected outward from language. And this, uh, has a kind of warping effect on the way that we understand, uh, race and how it works, um, for ourselves and for other people
0: yeah very very much of the kind of i forget the second author but the the like george Lakoff, Mm -hmm. metaphors we live by stuff oh excuse me i'm getting choked up just thinking about um the history of communication theory um (laughs) but but very much this kind of thing of exactly as you're saying that using the language of games summons up this whole world um and and so that's why you know something that that i had an issue not an issue with like um accepting but an issue kind of understanding how it plays out is exactly like that quotation that i read earlier right gaming technologies whether a a game controller a pair of dice or a metaphor like a stacked deck right I i have a hard time thinking about a metaphor as a gaming technology but, but this is the exact kind of thing that, that you're demonstrating and um, the g- kind of thing she's talking about here as the race card, right? In the same way that a game controller operates as kind of a, a, a mediating apparatus between two different systems, right? Mm-hmm. The metaphor itself operates as a kind of mediating system. It brings a world with it. Um, and in the last chapter, I think, it's, I think it's in the last chapter, she analyzes um, a speech by Barack Obama where he's talking about <laughs> a trade with China and that uh, um, that it's about having a level playing field and being fair. Mm-hmm. And then, and then he says, well, we always win when the rules are fair. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so that's the kind of thing, right? Where the, that language of a game brings with it a whole um, world and brings with it a kind of political orientation to that world too. And so for her, that's happening all the time here um, in these kind of questions of race. Um, the other thing to to bring up here just really briefly is that this book is structured alongside a six-sided die and so each of the each of the chapters is assigned a a, a face of the die mm-hmm. that when paired with the other chap or with the opposite face adds up to 7 because which, that's how die work that's how die work uh, yeah mathematically and they are they're meant to be kind of like conceptual pairings i guess that that move beyond the game i i think this is a really interesting idea i i'm not quite i'm not quite sure it works for me
1: yeah yeah i mean the the way to think about it is that whereas uh your your kind of standard academic monograph is going to uh have a kind of historical trajectory where it starts at the beginning and it moves like it in each sort of subsequent chapter or it starts at the beginning of kind of whatever historical record that you are taking as your object of study, uh, right? You're going to start with your earliest text, your earliest example, and then you kind of go uh, through history forward and you track like the development of something, right? That's the the bare bones, most basic kind of uh, academic monograph um, that you would, that you might do. Uh, these chapters are arranged such that um, they they parallel one another, right? Rather mm-hmm. than rather than arguing to a point of kind of like final development, right? Rather than having a, a culmination that we're working toward, uh, this is about seeing a resonance between different ways of thinking across history. So like, for example... Uh, The first chapter and the last chapter uh, pair up, and the first chapter is about um, the Chinese Exclusion Act in in America in um, the late 19th, early 20th centuries, Uh, sort of like the whole context around that. Um, And then the last chapter is about uh, gaming. Well, actually, to to make it clear, right, that first chapter, one of the one of the one of the discourses around Chinese exclusion that emerges is uh, gambling right and whether or not uh chinese immigrants are gambling too much uh, why is it that they're gambling so much like is it something about like you know being very racist but like like, why, why is it that the Chinese gamble, right, is this question that is driving a lot of these debates. Um, and then the final chapter, chapter six, uh, is very much about the present day. Uh, but it's about the emergence of internet addiction in, uh, in the way that that gets articulated in the DSM-5, but also uh, China's uh, sort of like government uh uh, official government position on gaming and internet addiction and also like discourses of gold farming and so on and so forth uh so Mm -hmm. that's sort of what's going to happen and I think we can draw those parallels out but just so you know that's kind of what the the structure of this book is like yeah so I mean that kind of gives us our, our start with the first chapter which I've already said is uh, yeah. About the issue of Chinese immigration in in uh, the Western United States and uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act,
0: a large a large chunk of this chapter is dedicated to um, kind of working through the way that um, Chinese immigration number one is is thought, um, you know, the late nineteenth or early twentieth century, and number two, um, looking at the ways that those immigrants are pathologized by. Um, you know, white American lawmakers for the most part. Um, and then gambling is used as a way of levering against them. Right. So gambling repeatedly comes up as a kind of mechanism for policing and legitimating, um, you know, anti Chinese, uh, sentiment. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah I mean that, that that's the bulk of the chapter
1: well and it it ties in also with um sort of the the issue of immigrant labor as well um because mm-hmm. as as basically every sort of like racial system uh as every racial as is the case in every racial system once you press on it too much it becomes totally incoherent but there's uh sort of like several tracks of thought that are operating at this time period one is that Chinese immigrants are um, and this should probably sound familiar because these things rarely change. Uh, it's just sort of the targets. Uh, they are they are coming to America and they are uh, taking jobs. They're making money and they're sending it back to China, right, to their relatives in China. So that's money being drained off of the American economy. But also... Mm-hmm uh they're coming over and they're taking jobs and they're making money and then they're gambling all that money away they're wasting it because they don't really know how to like the 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 this is again right this is sort of like the cultural racist argument that is being made right uh and fickle talks about this there's the there's the uh the doubleness of the asian stereotype is that asian people are simultaneously uh workaholics humorless uh dedicated to the grind um but also just sort of addicted to like outbursts of wildness and gambling and, and frivolity um mm-hmm. there's like uh, it'll the, the the stereotype will toggle back and forth uh depending on sort of what use the speaker wants to put it toward mm-hmm. so that's happening Um, But there's also sort of this issue of like, well, these immigrants are working for such low wages, they're pricing out like who should really be getting these jobs. And that's not fair, right? It's not honest labor. Um, And so the like stereotype of like the Chinese immigrant um, who is uh, just, you know, wholly dedicated to gambling uh, becomes a kind of like counterweight to the idea that the Chinese immigrant Uh, also doesn't work fair right they don't like uh gambling is seen as not fair play because it's totally arbitrary it's totally random um Mm -hmm. but then also right the the chinese immigrant does not labor correctly either they don't work or play in the correct manner um and so that those two things lock together in a way that shores up a kind of uh, economic way of, of looking at the world, and whose economic interests are valid, uh, how, are, how, are, how is the exercise of them valid, and which are the ones that we need to protect.
0: Yeah, and these are, you know, I, I think for the most part, this chapter is kind of dedicated to looking at those uh, metaphoric formations, mm-hmm. you know, how, how does this show up in the description of it, right? So there's a uh, kind of a long-form discussion of a fictitious letter from a Chinese immigrant, about gambling in a publication called the wasp uh, which, which is like a, a par- was at the time apparently a big um kind of anti-chinese um um you know racist newspaper i guess mm-hmm. um and and so that's you know uh, fickle's working through these like very specific documents also this thing i didn't write it down for some reason but um uh, brett hart's plain language from truthful james or the heathen chinese Mm -hmm. um which is another it's kind of like an allegorical poem um i don't know i don't know if allegorical is the right word it's just a racist poem well uh, about a cheating uh chinese uh uh, card player
1: well it was so she gets into the history of this and this is this Mm -hmm. is some you know great literary studies stuff i i i like this bit because so bret hart bret the hitman hart (laughs) um, (laughs) that's exactly what I thought I was like, yeah. wow, and it's weird because the guy in the poem is named Bill Nye. <laughs> like, anyway, yeah,
0: I do like I do like that Fickle puts in there. It's like Bill Nye, and then uh, you know uh, a a parenthetical that's
1: like no relation as far as I know. Yeah. Um. <laughs> And like, as it happens, Bret Hart's name is spelled differently from from the wrestler. So she doesn't have to clarify there. Uh, But uh, yeah, so Bret Hart has has the poem Plain Language from Truthful James, but it becomes much more famously known as the heathen Chinese. Um, And it is a narrative poem. It's it's (laughs) it's a 19th century, you know, Western frontier poem. Uh, which I have talked about before on our other show, Too Much Future, because apparently these are things that I read and know about. Yeah, these things keep coming up.
0: Uh, (laughs) Frontier poetry. I don't know why that's such a a powerful force in American Canadian history, Uh, uh,
1: but it is. But uh, the the, the poem is about an Irish immigrant named Bill Nye who is playing a game. Um, I don't remember if they're playing poker or they might be playing um, something else because this is another point actually that Fickle makes that I should highlight. The the, the other thing that makes uh, Chinese immigrants and sort of Chinese um, gambling kind of a... a highly visible and highly controversial for like a white American audience is that these Chinese immigrants are coming over and they're not playing bridge, right? They are bringing games from China. So it's not only that they're gambling, it's like they're gambling with these weird games that other people are learning and, and they're kind of catching on, right? They're playing Fantan or whatever. Um. So anyway, uh, Bill Nye, who is an in the poem, an Irish immigrant, uh, wants to, is going to play a game uh, against uh, a Chinese immigrant named Ah Sin. Uh, and they're playing Euchre, by the way. Oh, yes, they're playing Euchre, which... <laughs> 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 uh, it's very funny. There, uh, there's a bit... I didn't write this down in my notes, but uh, Fickle sort of, like, talks about Euchre as, like, this very outmoded, like... And it was, it it is kind of outmoded, but it was very popular in the 19th century, and she talks about it as if, like, no one knows what Euchre is anymore, when, like, for whatever reason, when I was growing up in rural Indiana, we were playing Euchre in middle school. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a, just a ragtag gang of,
0: of middle schoolers, like, uh, seriously, roughing it up and playing
1: Euchre after school. <laughs> there was a Euchre fad in my school, like... People were playing Euchre all the time. Like, everyone loves Euchre in Indiana. Um, Anyway, (laughs) uh, so they're playing a game of Euchre, and Bill Nye, um, he says to, I think, the the speaker of the poem, who's the guy named Truthful James, uh, he he tells him, he explains to him, I'm going to play this game of Euchre, and I'm going to cheat. And uh, the narrator's kind of like, you can't do that. Like, that's bad. Don't cheat. And Bill Nye's uh, response is like, listen this guy is, he's just Chinese and they all cheat anyway. So in order to like make this work, I've got to sort of like, you know, get ahead of him and cheat better. Um, and the poem turns when, uh, it, it sort of presents Bill Nye as, you know, being kind of projective or paranoid. And then the poem turns when it turns out that Ah Sin is in fact cheating. And then like a bar fight erupts and people get the crap kicked out of them. Um, and Hart, the man who wrote the poem, intended this to be satire because the reason he wanted uh like the the, the reading he intended, uh or so he says, is that uh, Ah Sin has no choice but to cheat because everyone in everyone else playing the game hates him. Right? Like mm-hmm. that is sort of a position he gets forced into. Uh, but it ends up becoming a way that justifies Bill Nye's own cheating. And so despite the fact that Hart claims that this poem is supposed to be satirical, it becomes a, a very straightforward and earnest uh, banner under which, like, anti-Chinese sentiment um, conglomerates, right? It becomes, like, a thing that people who want the Chinese Exclusion Act to be passed are pa- they're passing this poem around, they're quoting from it, and so on. Um, so that's a, a, an interesting kind of historical example of how some of this works out
0: mm- mm-hmm. yeah and it and it becomes like hyper hyper popular, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I think that's the majority of this chapter,
1: yeah no, i mean that the 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 um the heart poem is is the ending point, it's kind of like the summary of not 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 the summary but the the analysis of that poem kind of mm. uh condenses everything that's being talked about here and specifically right the 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 project of the book how how do gaming metaphors kind of migrate or how does gaming language migrate into uh, other discourses or how does it inform them mm-hmm. yeah and then how do those political decisions or how do these uh
0: political affects or feelings how do they get shifted when they run into games mm-hmm. and um the gaming metaphor here or or i guess the the storytelling around the gaming is what legitimates the anger and the fear for these anti-Chinese, um, uh, you know, people, mm-hmm. right? Um, not legitimates in, in the sense of, like, makes them justified, but for them, right, they they see their entire system of life and um, their political racism, or just the racism, I guess, normally, but it's politicized. Um, their racism is like, oh yeah, of course, because this game tells the story exactly um, um, how it is in real life, mm-hmm. um, and so that shows up in the other chapters, like in chapter two.
1: Yeah, just desserts: a game theory of the Japanese American internment. Uh, this is a fascinating chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, the the sort of closest or the 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 fastest way to make this connection explicit uh, is that. At the end of the previous chapter, Fickle talks about how one of the ways that the the discourse around Hart's poem works is it figures any sort of, it figures the, the Chinese claim to honesty, right? The Chinese immigrant uh, being like, oh no, I'm playing the game the same as you, right? We're both operating by the same rules as a bluff technique. Uh, In other words, uh, and this again is like uh, this, this has resonance into the, into the present period um, in terms of like racial stereotypes, right? Uh, The, the Asian cannot be trusted. Their motivations are unknowable. And this comes up very specifically after uh, uh, Pearl Harbor during World War II in the United States, when the loyalty of Japanese Americans um, becomes a very, like fraught topic uh how how does one divine loyalty and furthermore who does one ask for loyalty you know who who mm-hmm. who who is already questionably loyal and why <laughs> yeah um
0: and so yeah this is kind of threading a conversation between the logics of uh, Japanese internment during World War II if you're not American um, and even if you're American, just got a bad education like all of us did. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you might not know about this, uh, but you know during World War II uh, the United States is at war with Japan and interns um, a huge number of Japanese Americans who are living on the west Coast um and um and it happened for uh quite a long time through the war um and you know divested them uh, or well, robbed them of not even divested but robbed them of earthly goods so businesses and things like that right they mm-hmm. they were interned um and so the united states up and through the 1960s i think ni- later in the book she says in 1965 there was finally legislation to um, address some of the economic problems there. But, um, I mean, an entire massive ethnicity of people on, uh, in, in the West half of a massive country were put in internment camps, um, mm-hmm. and then tested for their loyalty and, um, um, you know, uh, oppressed in, in, um, violent ways by the United States government. And that, that's really not something that other than through legislation, um, you know that's been addressed uh, in the United States. I mean, I to be frank, I think that most people aren't taught about it. I certainly in, encounter students all the time um, when teaching college courses that they have no idea what I'm talking about when I talk about internment. So um, you know, I just giving that kind of uh, background for people who might not know. Um, but but then she kind of reads it, uh, fickle reads it through this kind of question of the development of of game theory and how game theory, um, and its way of thinking the question, the friend and foe question and kind mm-hmm. of statistically working out um, what would what is the best possible maneuver to make in order to generate safety, basically, um, how that legitimates and creates a condition of Japanese internment, um, mm-hmm. you know, how the government uses that theory and how kind of the, you know, kind of, um, I don't know, technocracy of, of, of the United States how it used that theory in order to legitimate basically anything it wanted to do mm-hmm. yeah give
1: me a minute i'm trying to think of like no. what i want to touch on next here no you're good you want do you want me to dig into game theory a little yeah bit? dig into game theory and then we can talk about sort of specifics i guess
0: So uh, Fickle gets into this question by uh, looking at Von Neumann's work. Um, Von Neumann is an early kind of proponent of of game theory, or or maybe not even um, um, proponent, but I guess inventor of, um, Mm -hmm. and Morgenstern as well. Um, and it's a mode for negotiating human life. I mean, game theory, I think now we think of almost entirely in economic terms. I think most people, when they encounter game theory, encounter it in like a business school class. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how much it shows up anywhere else. Of course, if you do game studies, uh, you you end up with (laughs) 400,000 people all the time asking you about game theory, (laughs) asking about your work in game theory, and you have to patiently explain, uh, because that's our social duty as people who... Uh, do game studies work to say, actually, I don't do game theory. Um, mm-hmm. But what Fickle is saying actually here, kind of implied is that we actually do do game theory <laughs> uh, in that game theory is aligned with um, a system of racial um, thinking about who gets to count as part of the social body. And so, for example, you know, one of the ways that that works in this uh, chapter is that they are thinking of the um, or, or, or uh, within game theory and the RAND Corporation in particular, just a think tank. They still exist today. They did a lot of games work um, in the 20th century. Uh, Jeremy Antley, who is a big part of the Game Study Study Buddies community, Jeremy also does work on on RAND and uh, has been reading some of that stuff. Did did some recent publications on that if people are interested, but. Um, uh, basically, right. The the game theory gives you a kind of order of operations for thinking through um, how you get to optimal outcomes. And so, uh, on, on one hand, that's uh, been hotly critiqued, and and um, Fickle kind of works through that critique of uh, particularly nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties authors who are are lining it basically with kind of the technological management of human beings, right? Mm-hmm. A very similar kind of critique of utilitarianism as well. Um, you know, this idea that you can kind of mathematically operate or, or kind of um, logic tree your way to optimal decisions for everyone. And ultimately, you know, um, she talks about Philip K. Dick's solar lottery, you know, a little bit of science mm-hmm. fiction studies showing up here uh, and how that's kind of paradizing and critiquing um, using these these different systems. Um But she does a really kind of nuanced uh, reading of, for example, questionnaires that were given to interned Japanese Americans about uh, declaring loyalty and how those, uh, you know, the for um, game theory, there's a pretty clear order of operations here, right? You have to treat everyone first like an enemy because you have no way, an observer has no way of knowing if a signal of friend is ever authentic. Mm-hmm. So you have to create conditions under which you can observe um, uh, positive signals that are not just the signals that are being given of, of friendliness. And so the the questionnaire becomes one of those of, asking people to um, uh, first swear fealty to the United States and then to fully negate any kind of fealty to the Japanese emperor. Um, and it's this kind of two-question combo that happens. And you and she kind of walks through the history of it, of giving that to people. Um, and, and then she's looking at some kind of um, at literary examples of that happening, kind of um, writing that happen, happens after that time of people thinking about it. Um, and, uh, and and then people thinking about the kind of their own signaling that they're doing. So the game is being played, quote unquote, the game of loyalty to the United States and the stakes of internment are being played both by the people who are being interned because they're trying to think through what the correct answer would be, Mm -hmm. right? How do you best play this game optimally in order to not be put into a trap essentially of, you know, linguistic performance, and on the other side, the U.S. government is playing this game of what gets correct fealty or what is going to generate the best friend signal from this group of people, who ultimately, as you're saying, are, are stereotyped as unknowable, um, you know, uh, racial figures. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and just to sort of like make explicit, uh, like the 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 actions here. So, like, what happens is internment internment happens. The United mm-hmm. States government um, divests these people of like their businesses, their homes, all this stuff, uh, sends them to these internment camps and then distributes a survey to everyone with two questions. Um, and I don't remember the precise order or the precise wording. I don't remember if you if we even get them, but it's like what you just said. Like, so you've been sent to a camp interned and then they give you a survey and it's like question one. Like, do you harbor any feelings of ill will toward the United States? Or, like, you know, do you you have loyalty to the Japanese emperor or whatever? Like, question one. And then question two, uh, if you have loyalty to the United States, would you fight in the war? Right? Would Mm -hmm. you be a part of, like, the war front in the Pacific? And what happens to, like, the men's... Like, everyone has to answer these questions, even the women. But if the men answer yes to both questions they get sent like they're like great you lo- you want to be an american citizen like you're off to the war front in a segregated unit
0: um yeah they become draftable i mean that, that that's
1: part of the uh reason for the the survey itself right and so the the way that sort of like the game theory logic works out here is that uh the united states government justifies internment based on the idea that we need a way to uh like to, we need a way to uh control the signals from this population to know like what is friendly and what is not friendly right we we need to uh create the conditions where we can ask those questions and get those answers um and then the people who are interned end up in a similar position and this is what she gets at through readings reading through the novels um because the these obviously these episodes, these novels that are one of them is written during like while while the author was interned and then one is uh, sort of written after that but is about the consequences of internment on a family um mm-hmm. the the ways that the people in the camps think through how they answer these questionnaires is based on how not only what they think the government wants to hear from them but what they think the other people in the camp are going to say uh, and there are sort of obviously like uh, different factions within the camps of people who want to present, um, you know, a certain kind of united front and other people who want to maybe be more conciliatory and all of the, the kind of debates in the communities that that work out in this way. And, you know, it ties into uh, the, the Japanese American identity. Right. And sort of like the generational tensions that are that are arising um, between uh, first and second uh, generation immigrant families and things like that. Which is, this all comes down to, uh, I think um, Fickle puts this pretty well, uh, what uh, people seem to think game theory can do, which is, quote, eliminate the sense of guilt and responsibility associated with making a difficult decision. Mm -hmm. right like uh putting people in camps becomes uh, a strategic decision like i don't like we we don't have to think about sort of the ethics of that or feel bad about that because it is just strategy it is what we need to do in order to get the answers we need um but then when you're on kind of the other end of this it becomes like well what what is the answer we need like what do we need to do what are the kind of uh Uh, questions that we need answered or what is kind of the the front that we want to present um when we're in kind of this very disadvantaged position uh and so game theory ends up operating on on both sides in different ways
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i i was actually pretty surprised about the um willingness to engage in game theory Mm -hmm. that that uh shows up here um you know, uh, Fickle basically says that that game theory ultimately is kind of a new form of humanism mm-hmm. in a way or, or, or it carries the project because she's responding to the critiques of, you know, that it's that it's pure technology, you know, given over to human life, that there's no kind of, um, uh, you know, it's an, an, an inhuman system, quite literally. And, uh, she, and she says, well, you know, it's a way of, of pushing the ideals of humanism a little bit further than, than we think that they went before. And that's certainly the way that these early, uh, theorists of game theory are thinking about it. So I was actually a little bit surprised about that, 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 um, it seems like she was defending game theory, uh, there in a pretty specific way against critique, um, um, other stuff here, you know, uh, something that's striking me here looking at our notes is that, uh, we haven't talked about the word Ludo Orientalism yet, mm-hmm. um, which shows up in the introduction, but might be important to define here. Um, yeah, Do you want me to do that or do you want to do it?
1: Well, you can do that. Cause I think I actually gave kind of a definition of Ludo Orientalism earlier, but I didn't say the word. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we have been using the, the uh, context of it this entire time and the kind of uh, implicit definition, but just not using the term. But Fickle uses the term Ludo-Orientalism as opposed to just Orientalism uh, in order to distinguish between something like techno-Orientalism, right, which has its own kind of trajectory. We talked about that a, b- a bit with um, the Nakamura book. Um, but Ludo-Orientalism is not just when Orientalism shows up in games, Right, it, mm-hmm. it is the co-construction of games understood through Orientalist frameworks and then um, uh, Asian-ness understood in the context of games. So it's it's understanding these kind of two forms and figurations of, of life, right? The game and then the kind of ethnic or geographic uh, origin point as seeing those two things as co-constituting one another. And, and yeah, like you said a second ago... Um, that's entirely what's going on in the first chapter, right? It's, it's demonstrating how gambling and Chineseness, um, get, you know, develop each other in the context of one another. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we just haven't used the term yet and it gets used quite a bit through the book. And so I can imagine if we went through the rest of this, not using the term, someone who cracked the book open might be a little bit surprised, but, um, that that's, that's what it means. It's a useful term. Um, uh, it just hadn't come up yet.
1: Yeah. Um, And then so, for instance, in this chapter, um, in the second chapter, Ludo-Orientalism comes back around because it, like, Ludo-Orientalism here seems more like uh, a description of the experience of, like, the Japanese Americans being interned, right, of knowing that uh, there is a kind of racial, uh, like, there is an authority a system of of race and a, and an authority kind of at work on and around you and trying to figure out what do i need to do in order to survive here mm-hmm. right so that is like the, the one of the uh, Ludo orientalism comes up in different ways in each chapter and this is uh this is kind of how it comes up here yeah absolutely
0: um Another thing I guess I want to say too, because it's it's becoming more apparent to me, right? As we're kind of working through these chapters, there's just going to be big pieces that we're not getting to. If if any of this seems interesting to you, you should probably um you should probably just read this book. Uh, and the reason I say that is that I think this book is fairly unique in that each of the chapters is a really deep dive, sometimes into really hyper specific uh, stuff that you know in the kind of decompressed format of a podcast we can't just get you. So for example, the reason I'm thinking about that is that um, Fickle does a really deep dive here into Nicholas Lohman and second order observations, mm-hmm. um, and which is fascinating. And her kind of reading of that in the context of games is really interesting to me, but not something, it, it would literally require us to, to do as much work as she is mm-hmm. doing in the book in order to even kind of explain that here. And it's, it's not, it doesn't really carry through to the rest of the book. So, um, you know, we're going to allide over it. Um, but, uh, I think this is a really interesting book in the sense of, of how much it is willing to deep dive on specific methods in some of these chapters that don't really carry through to the other chapters, but nevertheless really kind of push the chapters themselves, um, in, in really interesting ways.
1: Yeah. Um, do you want to move on to the third chapter?
0: Yeah, I think so. There, there's some other cool stuff here about the kind of popularization of, um, of game theory um, into mm-hmm. the American public that it, it that it becomes a truly like national discourse for the middle class. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting, but another thing that we don't really have, specifically the white middle class, um, but uh, it's something we don't really have the, the time in the show to, to get deep into. But very interesting chapter. I thought it was really cool, but now we're talking about chapter three. Against the odds, from model minority to model majority.
1: Yeah, and uh, this chapter sort of carries forward uh, what I was saying about Ludo Orientalism in the previous one, uh, about how it becomes this and and speaking of things that we don't really get into, right? The previous chapter has readings of three different novels that yeah. we just yes. <laughs> again, we don't have the space to, to sort of like dig into them, but it is in the readings of those novels that uh Fickle makes sort of the the point that um another version of Ludo orientalism is the way that the the like Asian American experience becomes this kind of ludic awareness of the racial system and thinking like, all right, like how do I exist in this? Like what do I do? Um What are the rules? How do I, how do I work in or around them? So on and so forth. Uh, And then in very striking contrast to chapter one uh, in the Chinese exclusion act and uh, you know, all the stereotypes about gambling and so on uh, post-war in, in the fifties and sixties we get the birth of the discourse of the Asian American as uh, what they call the model minority uh, because uh, you know, the, the, sort of backing like the 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 imaginary behind this right uh is that well it's it's a bunch of primarily white people asking like why is it that people who aren't white don't seem to be doing that well in america uh and or like people who are uh you know maybe like from white uh, immigrant communities, but, uh, have not fully assimilated. Um, you know, like why is there so much like crime with like, uh, you know, various, uh, European immigrant families on the East coast, right? Like what, like what are, what's up with these crime rates? What's going on all this, all of this, uh, all of this sort of old style, like ways of thinking about, uh, minorities or, or different ethnic groups, um, is kind of out in, in, in the culture and then uh, we get the Asian American family as kind of like the model minority of the of the immigrant uh, or the the you know the people of color or the the, the non white people who uh, come to America and sort of despite the odds, despite how things seem to have worked out generally for other other ethnic groups, um, have really done it well. Right. Have uh, made their small businesses and assimilated culturally. And uh, she gets into a lot of um, really fascinating news articles from this time. uh, Mm -hmm. That's just like, you know, here's like a picture of, um, you know, a Chinese American family in New York's Chinatown. And they're just like sitting around in the living room wearing, you know, very like very clearly like Western 1950s American clothes and like the, the father and son are constructing like a model airplane kit uh, or something like that. Right. That's the, kind of idealized scene of domestic uh, sort of domestic Americana. Uh, and one of the points that uh, fickle wants to make is that uh what is really happening here is that this is the the model minority is a model for the white majority, like that. This is, this is the type of family that the white majority would like to see. And therefore that is why, and in this weird way, rather than, or, In addition to being a kind of like signal to other ethnic groups or um, even other, uh, uh, you know, uh, Asian Americans, uh, it becomes a signal to white people of like, no, this is what the country is. And like when things are working right, this is how everyone turns out.
0: Yeah, this is, you know, at the beginning of the show when I said, you know, Fickle, through paying very close attention to things, it's actually very Derridian and, and, and not to say that Fickle's like doing a Derrida thing, but right, Derrida's close reading practices also produce this kind of thing of looking so intensely at the internal logic of something that you, that you can clearly demonstrate how its internal logic produces something other than what it says it's producing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and it's the product of, you know, hyper, hyper close reading practices, but absolutely, you know, just, just to kind of echo what you're saying here, right? She opens the chapter near the beginning of the chapter uh, quotes, this piece from the writer, David Palumbo Lou, um, and it says basically that, that there are two targets for the model minority thesis. Um, and one is African-Americans and the other and other problem minorities, quote unquote. And uh, the other one is the white middle class, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's dual faced. And, and basically it's, uh, you know, theor- not theoretically, it's developed in order to cudgel other minorities, basically to say, Hey, why is the Why are you not the same way as Asian-Americans are, But as you're saying, and for the white middle class, too, to be able to introduce this kind of third term, essentially, right? But but in the black-white binary, in order to demonstrate what good American values look like and what what a good immigrant or a good minority can do, quote-unquote. And and so, but you're, you know, as you're saying, and, and where Fickle pushes it to is that it goes entirely from being a, this is what happens when America is working correctly, to this is the, the, you know, Asian American immigrants provide the perfect model for everybody because they have absorbed the American values, the, the American uh, economic values in particular, the ideology of Americanness better than white Americans do. Um, and so uh, the, as you were talking about, right, there, there's photographs in the book of, of like the Asian American family unit Um, And it's like, you know, the fantasy of the post 1950s, Uh, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like, what if we were you know, everyone in the 1960s and 70s, what if all the families were just hanging out in one room, and it was all the generations and they were being respectful and nice to one another, and like working on their model trains or whatever. Um, And so, so yeah, it's a fascinating kind of, of flip maneuver of of um, the responsibility and the onus of like Americanness shifting into an entirely other group Mm -hmm. other than the white middle class that
1: ostensibly centers that, that whole operation.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Gambling shows up here again.
1: Yeah. uh, Well, so the reason gambling is important here is because the, the, the model minority discourse preserves the idea that America is a level playing field. Uh, which is, of course, a gaming metaphor, right? What does it mean for something to be a level playing field, for everyone to have kind of an equal chance, to be on equal footing? And uh, the Asian-American model minority uh, uh, myth kind of comes around uh, in a way that suggests, right, like America, like this is because America is working correctly, that it is a level playing field and that these people uh have made it work, and so why isn't it working out for other people? It must be something internal to them rather than mm-hmm. uh you know anything inherent anything structural right like the structure's great. we've got a great structure uh any faults uh that you may notice are probably internal to individuals or whatever right that that kind of thinking um and the reason that gambling is important here then is that in theory uh everyone is on equal footing when it comes to gambling because it's pure chance uh but mm-hmm. the 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 sort of like the the problem of gambling or rather like the the thing that ends up can end up being like seductive about gambling is the feeling or like the the desire uh or the belief of exerting some sort of control on what is in fact up to random chance
0: yeah and there there were interesting ways that that gets racialized again right this is heavily dependent i think a lot of the argument about gambling here is dependent on that first chapter too but something really fascinating to me this is on 85 86 she is quoting this um sorry ucla professor of psychiatry sorry i was looking for the the thing here timothy fong yeah Mm -hmm. timothy fong um, so this is at the bottom of 85 and top of 86. In a striking echo of yellow peril claims of inveterate gambling, Timothy Fong, an assistant professor of psychiatry at UCLA, explicitly links the material and metaphorical connotations of gambling and summarizing his study's findings. Asian immigrants who take a chance and come to America or are... this is I'm sorry. This is a quotation. His study's findings, colon, begin quote. <laughs> I want to make that clear. Uh, Asian Americans who take a chance and come to America are more likely to gamble because immigrating to America from your homeland is a huge gamble in and of itself. Most likely they have some kind of biological predisposition to gambling in general, in life.
1: Yeah. That is
0: wild. That is a wild thing for someone to write in... In, uh, but, but but she's quoting that, right, in order to demonstrate that the the kind of metaphysics of gambling, right? And the biology of gambling and the metaphor of taking a gamble all just get collapsed all the time when talking about immigrants and, and particularly talking about Asian immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um that that the the question it, it just regrounds that question of the level playing field as you're talking about. That exactly they took a gamble and they're willing to keep gambling because at the end of the day the 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 you know it's possible to do that and
1: it's fair and its randomness. Mm-hmm yeah. Um, I mean, and that's sort of what this, the the end of this chapter really ends up being a kind of going back into Asian American literature and looking at figures of, uh, sort of dissolute, uh, or inveterate, uh, gambling gamblers, right? Like this, this, it's a character type in, in some uh, post-war uh, Asian American short stories. Um, mm. and frankly, I don't have as much to say about this because it becomes about, uh, how should these types of characters be read within the field of Asian American literature? and just to kind of like very briefly reconstruct it as best as I can, uh it, to tie back to that first uh introduction or the first question of 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 sort of authenticity, right? It's uh are these are these characters? who are also sort of notably figured as kind of uh, people who experienced internment, right? People who kind of become gamblers after internment uh, disrupts their lives in such a way that they cannot rebuild. Um, Are these uh, sort of... Uh, critiques of that from these authors right are they are they trying to speak back to uh like are, are they trying to hold up gambling as a kind of consequence or sort of like a a mental state that you end up in uh once once you realize that there is a kind of like arbitrary force at work in the world that is going to take away everything from you uh because of some perceived difference right like if, if it is if that can just happen to you right if your life is that contingent um then is that sort of what happens when these uh characters become uh just you know they're they're poor and uh alcoholic and gambling a lot and living very very sad lives um or you know just wh- what what do we do with this character and the way that it recurs in Asian American literature really is, is uh, what uh, fickle is trying to get at. And um, she is speaking to kind of different traditions of reading these characters. And I think trying to kind of come away with a synthesis of, uh, Mm. you know, are these, are these people like, are these character types secretly like subversive about the Asian American, uh, like, uh, like project of, of integration and assimilation or something like that. Right. Or is that like, kind of like what the, the, the meaning being encoded there is, is kind of a critique of the, the move to assimilate or the, uh, you know, possibly the hopelessness of being accounted a full person within America.
0: hmm Yeah. I, I thought it was really interesting, but again, yeah, similarly, I don't have much to say about it because I, I do not know the nuances of, of, uh, the literature. Mm-hmm um part two the the previous three chapters were in part one uh this is now part two marco polo in the virtual world um chapter four west of the magic circle the orientalist origins of game studies um and this is about uh uh you know um, um frequent frequent game studies uh people <laughs> i was gonna i i couldn't come up with a word citationers i don't know <laughs> citations i guess uh that's not exciting as a word but uh but it's about Kawan huzinga and about how those theories are built and about um how game studies has um absorbed them and kind of has absorbed some of the assumptions that are built into their uh, into their work. You know, this is something that you and I have talked about on the show several different times, but what I think is really exciting about this, I mean, I'm always excited to read a good, solid, uh, you know, critique of some some formative assumptions for a discipline, period. I think that's always probably good um, interrogating work. But uh, what's really exciting about this is that um, Fickle digs into how they build their theories and specifically into how these theories of play and culture are pulling from very specific sources that um, bring some assumptions with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the first things that happens here is that uh, she cites and works through and is really um, in conversation with across this chapter, Jacques Erman's piece. I think it's in New French Studies, um, something like that, from the 1980s. Um, since our two episodes on Husinga and Calois, uh, way back, I've actually read this piece. It's really great. I, I think people it should check it really out for great. sure it's It's really cool. I mean, and as she, I think as she says at the end of the chapter, it's very much a Derridian kind of deconstructive read. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, and I, I think in a positive way, it, it you know when someone says that about a literary studies piece and a theoretical piece written in the 1980s, that could mean a lot of different things, mm-hmm. not all of them positive in the sense of how readable is it, how useful is it at the end of the day. But uh, Erman does a really, really solid interrogation of uh, what these two figures are up to and reads them in their context. And so Fickle is doing that and then also doing way more on top of it. Um, mm-hmm. Is it better here to give the kind of, uh, because I think this chapter is a little bit of a, like a, like a murder mystery chapter in (laughs) that uh, we work our way to like how it flips itself inside out, but it might be better just to say what the big, big thesis here is here at the top and then talk about how she proves
1: it. Um, Let's go ahead and give us the thesis, Cameron. What is it? It is that uh, Kalwa, the under, the way that
0: Hazinga and Kalwa understand games is how game studies understands Huizinga and Kalwa, meaning that they understand that game studies is a discipline that we, you know, I should say we, we understand uh, these two figures as kind of uh, being fundamental metaphysicians, you know, doing theory from nowhere as Mm -hmm. it were. Um, And that is their own theory of games, right? That games are such a fundamental, you know, for for Huizinga, um, play is more fundamental than culture. It produces culture out of it mm-hmm. um, for uh Kawa, you know games are ultimately down the road from the play instinct or whatever it is right mm-hmm. and so um they they grasp you know at their root a metaphysics, and so um uh, we are importing when we 're citing mm-hmm. these figures and when we 're engaging with them, and when we 're just taking their theories at face value. Um, we are importing a metaphysics with them um, that is maybe a huge mistake. Um, and so she she's doing this kind of of uh, you know, again, um I don't know topological maybe isn't even the right word here, but this kind of movement of forms or movement of I don't know i i don't I don't even have the words to describe the move here though, mm-hmm. I guess is what I'm saying, but it, it's a brilliant kind of thing of how these two figurations, I guess, right games themselves and the theory of games are actually operating in the exact same way mm-hmm. that that one is informed so heavily by the other. And we don't even recognize the linkage be- between them. Um, so, so it's fascinating, but
1: then she gets down into the specifics of exactly how these theories got built. Yeah. And just some context there, and this is, you know, m- absolutely my bullshit. Um, <laughs> the, the thing that is really nice about this is that she sits away, she, she situates wazinga and kalwa within a particular context uh and shows sort of how they themselves were responding to kind of a tradition of thinking and scholarship um and sort of how that's interesting, right? And uh, maybe commendable to, to to a certain extent, uh, but then she shows how, nevertheless, they end up falling back into the same traps that uh, the previous sort of generation of thinking was was prone to. Uh, the person that she puts them against is a guy who I think I've mentioned on this show before, Jakob Burkhardt, uh, who's kind of this uh, early intellectual historian. Um, he's very, very, very big in sort of like the construction of the, the construction of the idea that there was a thing called the Renaissance in, mm. in like as modern history might uh, describe it, right? Like sort of a great and very much like uh Burkhardt's very much a, a, a great man theorist of history, right? Uh, that history happens because like one person has the bravery and gets sort of like the, the, the nobility of spirit and that they do something and it changes the world. Um, and, Wouldn't you know it the first people to ever get the nobility of spirit to change the world happened to be the Greeks and only them no one else has Mm -hmm. ever engaged like no one else had thought to like engage with the world in a in a complex way before uh, Hellenic Greece. Mm -hmm. And from that we get this little thing called Western civilization and it just happens to have uh, been engaging with the world more and better consistently uh, forever and everyone else is you know up the creek basically. So, I mean, look, sometimes you're just Hegel, and you're sitting there, <laughs> and you look down, and Napoleon's
0: walking through the arch beneath you, and you <laughs> say, dang, that's the world spirit.
1: It's going. <laughs> there, there it is. is. Right there. He's the Whisp- guy. Whispers to my date every time the world spirit is on screen. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, Yeah. Watching, uh, watching Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and whispering to my date, that's the world spirit.
1: um but uh yeah so that's that's burkhart's kind of thesis right basically like it's it's a it's a cultural chauvinism right that uh greek like greek society uh that we're going to act like was some sort of homogenous thing um invented certain ideas that have made the intellectual inheritors of those ideas better at existing than other societies Mm -hmm. straight up that is that is the argument that is being made there uh, both Wazinga and Calwa want to approach this from a slightly different angle because they want—they're they, not going to say that you know, like uh, Greeks invented play and everyone else is just catching up. Um, they want to get at the idea that play is somehow uh, fundamental to uh, human nature or society, right? That that play is kind of a substrate of human activity in a way that gives rise to culture. Mm-hmm. So, uh. You know, that's, uh, you know, sort of all well and good, right? In the sense that they're attempting a sort of, uh, com- they're, they're attempting to find some sort of like commonality or universalism. Um, but the thing that ends up happening is that their attempts at universalism end up reproducing the divisions and hierarchies uh, of Burkhart just in slightly different ways, right? In slightly different tonalities or registers so yeah.
0: and 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 you know just to to you know uh what's so fascinating to me about this argument right is that uh, especially after we did our our episode in Hosinga um we we got a little bit of feedback that was of this level right that you know looking at Hosinga in his time and place and in his context he was a um you know progressive figure um you know certainly i think we say this in the episode right he's a he's a capital l liberal in that regard and has Mm -hmm. good intentions um but it is it's the kind of metaphysics and imaginary that he's participating in right and ultimately reproducing that that's really the problem here and it's the thing we have to think through and have to address in um you know in 2021 now um what I really like, you know, that's not to like, you know, I'm in no way dismissive of of the the feedback that we got. I think that's a, a positive and, and useful conversation to have and a useful thing to keep in mind. But what Fickle is getting at here, just just before previewing uh, as you're getting into it, is the the depth at which you have to approach these questions. The the depth you have to actually address Huizinga in order to get it away from this, you know, Western West is best imaginary, mm-hmm. um, is
1: pretty, it's pretty deep, but, but go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, I think that's great because, uh, just to you know, continue with kind of some examples here, uh, or like to explain exactly what fickle is talking about. So, uh, Huizinga at the same time that he is saying that, uh, you know, play is, is a fundamental human instinct and it's at work in all potential cultures, basically. Right. Uh, like that is, that is kind of his starting point. He nevertheless will do this thing where he'll be like, and if you, uh, you know, don't believe, uh, such and such a thing, all you have to do is look at the courtesy matches in China, um, Mm -hmm. where people are like the, the sort of like rules of social decorum are so complex that people are just like being courteous to each other in sort of more and more extravagant ways. And that is in fact, the play instinct, uh, and sort of the way that he talks about this, right? It it falls back into these ideas, like these Orientalist. And Huizinga is trained, literally trained, as an Orientalist, which is to say, uh, you know, a discipline invented uh, to cre- like by you know sort of a bunch of European academics uh, to talk about everything to the east. As if they could be authorities on it, right? As if we, mm-hmm. as if they could, like, there's all this stuff over there. Let's figure it out, um, to, to sort of like finalize, like, to, to look from the outside in and grasp like the truth of a thing, uh, and in this case, uh, like, an entire like diverse series of cultures across uh, uh many places. Yeah. Do you
0: want to really quickly, because uh, I'm realizing people might not know this, um, the the define Orient and Occident.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, east and west.
0: Yes, quite literally, right. And yes. so the, the the positionality of that, right. So I think people, when they hear the word "orient," right, uh, you know, there there's obviously this kind of um, Asian and particularly East Asian, I think, um, assumption around it, right. And obviously, it is not a a, a term that's really in the use uh, uh, very much anymore. And certainly, is when it does show up in popular culture, is universally offensive at this point. But it, its emergence is quite literally just to say east and real east of europe specifically and mm-hmm. occident is the west right so when you when when uh, people say things like eastern modes of thought now which i think is much more um in the, the lingo these days mm-hmm. um it's just the same thing mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's it's the same uh thing happening in a term that feels maybe a little bit less gross mm-hmm. uh, in in the kind of twitter universe uh but is literally meaning the exact same thing right it literally
1: um, so. it, it is the same spatial blueprint of the world. Um, yeah. Which we are going to talk about quite a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. But the the one of the big things about Quizinga, other than the fact that he is, you know, coming out of an educational background where he is uh, being like the, 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 the mood of the time. Right. Is that this is a thing you can do as a thinker, as a scholar. OK. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in attempting to sort of highlight how all cultures play or like all people can play. Um, he does this orientalist and I mean that in the more net like not the necessarily occupational sense but like the the oriental orientalist uh uh you know offensive like bad sense of uh the courtesy matches become like one weird story that uh, that explains a whole culture right like mm-hmm. like I can tell like here's how I can sp- can explain uh, here is and I'm speaking as Wazinga here right he's like how do I explain how the play instinct works in China well all you have to do is look at these courtesy matches Mm-hmm. right uh where uh, and that's going to explain everything you need to know about the Chinese people and what their priorities are and, and so on um whereas when Huizinga is going to write about Europe he's going to dedicate like an entire chapter to just talking about how wigs operate in different parts of Europe and how heterogeneous that can be and how sort of historically situated like the fashions of wearing wigs can be whereas in China they're just always doing these courtesy matches matches and it's just how the culture is
0: yeah you know there's this kind of the the i mean this is something we talked about in both of those episodes right Mm -hmm. what we called it in those episodes is the the kind of anthropological imagination Mm -hmm. um you you know in anthropological racism itself the the one a culture um is fully transparent to these thinkers right Mm -hmm. you know this is something that uh, Glissant, you know, a few years later, you know, 30 years later. Well, no, I guess uh, contemporary, anyway, in the mid-20th century. Um, uh, Glissant is talking about the the value of opacity uh, in, in relationship to European culture and European modes of thinking. And it's precisely because of this maneuver that dominates the early 20th century, especially kind of cultural theoretical positions of uh, being able to go and then backward work you know Mm -hmm. all of chinese culture as if that is one thing right Mm -hmm. um uh, all of it from one single game Mm -hmm. um and so and if there's one thing that that's a little bit that complicates this narrative for me um uh, the way that fickle kind of puts it out is that the i remember pretty significantly in both of these books but in huzinga especially that it's also um, Indigenous American groups, right? Mm -hmm. And it's also South American uh, Indigenous groups. And so there's something interesting going on here um, where this is co-constituted, right, of all spheres outside of Europe Mm -hmm. are contributing to this. I mean, obviously, um, Asia is a huge part of it, but I I feel like there's an additional, uh, you know, line of critique to be made here, or maybe a complication to this, because it seems a little bit less linear than fickle is drawing it up for in in the thing here but ultimately that doesn't (laughs) that is a uh the smallest little nitpick as opposed to uh, any kind of real critique
1: yeah i mean it's sort of like you know more to your point i know when Calwa and i know a thing that we talked about extensively in that episode because it's a huge example for him and it's one of his primary examples about gambling which Wah, you will remember does not like right like Mm -hmm. the the thing where uh like gambling is racialized, right. Uh, that we talked about in the earlier chapters, like Cal just leans into that, right. Cal straight up believes that people who are prone to gambling are like, you know, ethic, like ethically, not exactly, but sort of like, uh, uh, developmentally almost degenerate. Right. And that yeah. like, uh, societies or communities that have a lot of gambling in them are like superstitious and, and quote unquote backward. Right. Um, and that specifically when he's talking about that, he's talking about uh something that's happening, I think, in the Caribbean. Yeah, he does that.
0: He also talks about potlatch in the yeah. Pacific
1: Northwest, too. Yes. That that's
0: a that's a big one for Kawa and, and uh Batai as well. Yeah. Um but yeah, absolutely. So I you know, I'm just thinking about the specifics of reading those books and how uh how obviously so much of that aligns with what Fickle is saying, but there are these weird moments of excess there that that draw up more questions for me. Yeah. Um but. Um, but, yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry I, to detract from from your your point.
1: No, no, no. no. I just I was going to say I, I sort of I remember the same thing. Right. Um. But uh, sort of back to the text here. One of the other things that Fickle is kind of getting at is the way that Huizinga and Kalwa both kind of assume the ontological status of play as a thing that is uh om- like naturally separate from regular life or what we might call the real um mm-hmm. that this in fact reproduces the broader orientalist mindset orientalist here as like both the scholar but also like uh, orientalism as edward said means it right when he talks about orientalism as a as a way of um sort of for European-like and like, quote-unquote Western culture to uh, think of itself as unitary, stable, as uh, in some way bound up and connected to itself, um, as opposed to another, capital O, other, right, which is everything East of Europe. All that stuff, that's all, like, uh, different and weird and uh, different— it, it, does not cohere in the way that we and our like again quote unquote western traditions cohere into a stable lineage and so on um so for kalwa uh what ends up happening is that outside of like the the Good old like biological determinism of racism, uh, you instead get a, a kind of cultural evolution argument where different mm-hmm. societies based on the ways that they choose to play their games get locked into kind of like evolutionary tracks that then, you know, cause them to further diverge. And so play, which starts out as this thing that is going to like, you know, be fundamental to the human experience, actually just becomes another way of uh, creating different types of humans and implicitly or explicitly, Explicitly uh, placing them in kind of hierarchical relationships. Uh, the idea that play, and for Huizinga, this is the magic circle uh, that he talks about like two or three times and never again, but we all talk about it constantly. Uh, the magic circle reproduces like structurally the thinking of the Orientalist, which is mm-hmm. that uh, there is a place over there where things are different and we can like uh figure it out by stepping into like this place of alternatives or this place of uh you know this place where where the normal rules the real rules don't apply right like yes. play becomes kind of Uh, a weird stand in for like the entire, like what they would have called the Orient. Right. Uh, And if you wonder, like when we talk about getting oriented or orientation, it's the exact same thing, right? Uh, Being unfamiliar with something and then becoming familiar with it
0: yes this observation/ slash argument um, what what fickle sees in, in this theory is huge I think mm-hmm. um, and and you know it puts when we talk about the magic circle you know if we do that form of analysis it puts us in the position of making the hazingian argument not hazingian in the sense of like um, you know reproducing his exact argumentation but of doing structurally what he does with um, you know the east broadly right mm-hmm. of of saying look over here the rules are totally different we can explain this by looking at the way that people negotiate the rules on the inside of it and we can draw abstract principles from it mm-hmm. um you know and so when we say something like uh well starcraft is a magic circle and so when we find out people yelling racial slurs to each other in that really means they're friends then right then uh-huh. then then we understand that culture better right yeah that's exactly what Hosinga does with you know the the entirety of of everywhere east of i don't know turkey mm-hmm. um and so you know i i think that it's such a compelling uh and clear reading of what's happening with the adoption of the magic circle here mm-hmm.
1: and then she does a really great job where she talks about um so one of the big kind of foundational claims that, uh, Calwa makes in kind of his, you know, structuralist argument is that there's paideia, which is sort of like freewheeling, undisciplined play sort of naturally occurring or whatever, or it's, you know, closer to childlike play where rules aren't really in place or they're more malleable. And then there's ludus, uh, which is more structured, more formal. And this is where, you know, he makes his kind of like, this is what the Greeks did is, is they mm-hmm. uh, came up with Ludus or rather, you know, sort of like the Hellenic or Mediterranean uh, uh, civilizations came up with Ludus in response to Paideia, uh, which, uh, you know, institutes a kind of like system of civil society or whatever that, that you know, follows down through the ages from that. Uh, whereas in China, uh, they have something called Wan, uh, and I think we probably talked about that in in the episode, but probably not very uh, deeply. And she drills down, Fickle drills down into where he is drawing this term Juan as a play. And it's like a famously apparently like bad dictionary compiled by this uh guy who just wanted to give people like a a handbook for how to carry out business administration in imperial like in in in, you know british imperial hong kong right
0: yeah yeah it literally is a is a like glossary for doing imperial management Mm mm-hmm and that's where Kalwa was like yep i'm going to get my get my words from there
1: right and it's like that's how i'm going to explain like the plate instinct of china yeah um and
0: so you know it's as always right there's always the the easy button to push of like well these people were of their time and uh, what can we do with that and and what fickle does such a good job of here of demonstrating is that yes these people are of their time but also, they are making choices about who they align themselves with in you know in their time. Mm-hmm. And she also does a pretty interesting deep dive on Kaohua, um and his kind of just fascination with um, you know China in particular, mm-hmm. um, and his like constant writing about that. I, I talked about that a little bit in the episode. You know that he was a cultural critic um, and uh, kind of famously was into the, had this anthropological gaze everywhere. Right? He was also really into um native americans as well Mm -hmm. um and so uh, and someone was actually talking about because we talked about the writing of stones in that um uh in that episode which is his really bizarre book that he wrote later in life about just stone (laughs) (laughs) like images of stone someone in the uh, discord was talking about how they were reading it and he immediately says that um he's talking about how uh Uh, certain stones were believed to have been produced in China because they're too beautiful Um, and so they were uh, like elaborate Chinese fakes Um, and that was like an open question about whether these you know precious gemstones are real or not which again is this kind of like Imaginary of the unknowable, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, duplicitous Asian figure. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's everywhere in Kawaz. What I'm saying, you know, it's not even just in the the pieces that are directly thinking about games and and uh, culture.
1: Yeah. Um, I guess I mean that's kind of I think that's sort of like that whole chapter. I you know, I think the the way that she aligns kind of the the, the Orientalist mindset with the ways of thinking play in the magic circle i think is really interesting and i think that's a a thing that um you know warrants some extensive response from game studies especially is like when we when we talk about like play and uh sort of like maybe the freedom of play or you know the what what play might liberate or you know what are the liberatory applications of play or something like that um can we be sure that we're not just kind of like reinventing uh, sort of this other world on which we're just projecting our fantasies, and meanwhile also mowing down real people?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the uh, you know the question too, you know, it really made me think about well, what are the other kind of competitive modes of you know the description of the metaphysics of play or whatever. Um, that that I'm interested in that maybe still have some of the some some of the same problems. You know, I think James Han certainly mm-hmm. um, uh, inherits some of these problems. I think maybe is more useful at least, or at least gives us better tools to navigate that contradiction and problem um, because of his historical specificity. He cares about historical process, mm-hmm. whereas um, you know Kalwan Josinga kind of don't. They're they're really more into categorization rather than uh, movement. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, uh, James too, CLR James, I think that he is, you know, in his kind of valorization of certain ideals in the enlightenment, certainly adopting some of these, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, I don't think that as you're saying, I think that, that, uh, if you are uncritically using the term magic circle in the year 2021, you're making uh, a kind of intellectual mistake at this point mm-hmm. of, um, or you're explicitly aligning yourself with, um, uh, a racist politics uh, I mean, I guess that's one way of of, of uh, navigating this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the bad one, but that is certainly a tack that people could take. But I think that, you know, we have to have a, a critical approach to it. And that's how she ends this chapter, right? Mm-hmm. She, her, her end of the chapter is not, hey, we need to throw this out with the trash. Her, her ending is, hey, this presents a problem for us that we as a field need to actually navigate and think through seriously. And if we want to maintain pieces from these theories— because there might be things we want to maintain. We need to take them seriously and take their uh, drawbacks and their kind of um, political histories seriously Mm -hmm. and
1: address them on face. Chapter 5, Mobile Frontiers, Pokemon After Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're back to Pokemon Go. This is actually the big Pokemon Go chapter. Uh, Mm -hmm. And this uh, aligns actually with chapter 2, Um, which is about Japanese, the the one that was about Japanese internment. Um, Mm -hmm. We begin chapter five talking about how uh, back when Pokemon go first got big. uh, There was, you know, when, when this was like big in the news, uh, it was all these stories about like people getting lost and all the wacky things that happen as people try to play Pokemon go Uh, And Pearl Harbor, the naval base in, in Hawaii had to like, post a notice, uh, telling people to like not go in because like people were playing Pokemon go. And I guess something with something was spawning there or it was a gym. I don't know. People, people were going to Pearl Harbor and Pearl Harbor had to be like, Hey, don't come here and play your AR game because it's, it's a, it's a base. Um, and sort of what are, well, what Fickle says are the obvious resonances there, right, is sort of the the big picture historical uh, trajectory of, like, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor that initiates American entry into World War II um, to a Japanese-made video game, uh, the Pokemon franchise, right, uh, bringing, like, sort of, not not like soldiers, right, not an army, but just, like, typical people up to, like, transgressing on Pearl Harbor again. So there's like that kind of a weird historical echo thing happening there. Uh and then Fickle's question is like why did everyone not like what you know like this wasn't really talked about. You know why wasn't this resonance pointed out? Why did people not really think of it? Because from her perspective obviously um there is something there when we if we're thinking through the idea of uh ludo orientalism. Right? Uh, Mm -hmm. there is something to be unpacked there of, uh, why, why does this sort of historical event and a very sort of racialized historical event, um, not have, why is the resonance not being remarked upon? Why is it not being articulated? Uh, what has, what is up with Pokemon, right? Uh, that means that, uh, we're not commenting on any of this. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then uses that as a kind of bridge to talk about all the other things that are happening with Pokemon that we don't talk about. Yeah. <laughs> basically, right? Um, I I mean I think that that's kind of the under um, I don't know the the understructure the substrate of the of the uh, of the chapter is that all of these things uh, that Pokemon Go is reliant on a bunch of different things that are just unremarked upon in it. Um, that there are these kind of practices that are involved in Pokemon Go, the the play of Pokemon Go, that we're just absorbing. And then also there are all kinds of practices that are involved in Pokemon itself that we just don't recognize, right? And so this whole chapter I think is about kind of like the question of representation, Um, representation just in the sense of the, you know, something that is visible. Um, And what are you kind of adopting when you, um, um, when you're not digging deep so so for example um so her, one of her big kind of uh comments about pokemon go is how initially you know the the root of pokemon go comes from kind of two different things one is a google maps april fools hoax slash um activity i guess for people to do mm-hmm. that basically put pokemon in google maps and they encourage you to use the app to find them okay yeah, this so that's is a 2014
1: like this... april fools google prank
0: mm-hmm. pokemon challenge
1: it appears mm-hmm. as it says in your notes and
0: so and then the other part of it is the game ingress that niantic did uh, beforehand that kind of provided the data set for uh pokemon go and so uh what fickle digs into with kind of both of these things is that they are rewarding you for um providing a huge amount of raw data um, they are rewarding you for using GPS and kind of naturalizing the use of these map based systems and and thinking yourself geographically within uh, the map and she kind of does some theoretical analysis of what the the kind of end result of that is here that we don't have to get into um, and then ultimately ultimately it kind of does this double um, I don't know double realism I mean we'll talk about realism in a second I guess but this kind of double mechanism, in which um the the I guess the best way of putting it is it's it's work's game space argument. It is yes. doubling down on the Workian game space argument where there is not a fine distinguishing line between the experience of day-to-day life and the experience of playing the game which then naturalizes this whole thing with Pokemon and the kind of adoption of Japanese aesthetics worldwide. Um, glocalization, as uh, the keyword goes. That, mm-hmm. But it sounds like you, you have something you want to say about game space.
1: Oh, yeah. I was just going to say the, you know, building off of the previous chapter about, uh, you know, the, the Orientalism that may be inherent in, like, the division of play and real and the magic circle and all that stuff. Uh, one of the other consequences of that, Fickle says, is that by thinking of play as a thing that is distinct from everyday life and, like, always clearly distinct in some way, uh, we, as game study scholars, are not as equipped as we otherwise might be to talk about the ways that something like Pokemon Go is overriding reality or, like, you know, rests on Mm -hmm. top of our reality in a very clear way uh, that doesn't necessarily... well. That the, the, the maps that I use when I'm like putting in directions to, you know, the store or whatever are also the same. It's also the same map data that is being used when I'm playing Pokemon Go, right? That these things uh, interpenetrate each other rather than being very uh, separate.
0: Yeah. And so all of these systems are running into each other and the end product is something like Pokemon Go. Um she, she uses that in order to um, both critique the way that uh, game studies tends to understand politics. Um, you know, so she does a, a reading of Ian Bogost here of, uh, to understand how um, that, I mean, it's a kind of a classic reading of the question of the political, right, uh, in Persuasive Games and kind of across his, his uh, work, right? Bogost is talking about politics in the sense of like a political visual apparatus of the game, right? Is mm-hmm. it is it a game that's about uh, elections or is it about debt or something like that, right? That's a political game mm-hmm. in his kind of um, purview. And Fickle is saying, actually, no, all these games have have politics built into them. We need a kind of more robust sense of what the political means. You know, this if you're from any field from outside of game studies, this is a very familiar kind of um, argument. Weirdly enough, in game studies, it is. Uh, less common than than you might think, but we can even you know uh, go back to something like uh, Kishana Gray's book mm-hmm. and see a very clear uh, articulation of this argument. Um, but then that jumps into this kind of question of again of um, assumed politics or absorbed politics, particularly particularly around the globalization of um, Japanese culture. You know, one an example of which is Pokemon, um, and so uh, Pokemon is a um a thing a a product that is packaged for the global economy Mm -hmm. and so you know it it doesn't it is pre-localized glocalization right again this kind of 1990s buzzword that she's bringing back it 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 is pre-localized in the sense that its characters are designed to appeal to a worldwide audience Mm -hmm. it's um uh the pokemon themselves the the uh the veritable pocket monsters if you will <laughs>
1: uh they they have just came a up kind with that of... no one else has figured out that oh whoa whoa have
0: other people said that
1: oh uh, I, I actually i don't know i don't i don't really read the internet or play video games or anything yeah i'm gonna uh hold on i need to
0: send a self address stamped envelope to myself <laughs> <laughs> uh so people know that on this day i did it before the episode comes out but but that's all to say that the she then begins to read the kind of political stakes of what does it mean for japan to be um uh packaging things that are from its culture but in such a way that they do not appear to be japanese and there's a bunch of different uh, apparently this is a, a pretty wide um uh argument in uh, asian studies in a broad sense right so mm-hmm. uh in your notes i see you have the citation from christine yano about uh, commodity whiteface, mm-hmm. um and there's also i don't have the citation written down unfortunately but uh the language of odorless that mm-hmm. that these things don't have the the kind of vibe of being from any particular nationality other than a kind of vague japaneseness and so because of that um they can move um uh, more broadly mm-hmm.
1: right and that's exactly sort of the the redress that uh fickle wants to make with regard to bogost right is is whereas bogost is sort of talking about politics and in, in a very literal way like how are political things showing up in the game itself um fickle is reading backwards saying what are the like, what are the political decisions behind, and what are the implication political implications of, uh, this kind of this kind of cultural production of things that are geared toward, uh, being as you've said, pre-localized. Uh, so, if, uh, like, and one of the big questions becomes, you know, how do the localizers for Pokemon games? Uh, translate or transliterate certain puns or certain ideas. Where do those get introduced? Uh, and also, like in, for instance, the case of Pikachu, when does a creature's name seem not Japanese enough to not even warrant localization? Mm-hmm. So uh, this is all just—it's uh, very interesting to to just think about, right? Uh, the the transition that um, Fickle is highlighting from uh, a ja- jet. Japanese uh, sort of imperial memory right the sort of like imperial history of Japan during World War II um and and uh, you know the uh occupation of Manchuria and all this uh, various things that that happened then uh how that goes away right the the Japanese sort of government um officially has not recognized a, a lot of these war crimes and and things of that nature uh but the switch to kind of a soft power a strategy of cultural exports right of of creating things uh, of commodities that will sell uh in places other than Japan that will be popular in in a kind of global sense um and what are sort of the again political uh ideas that undergird even this strategy and in fact um I'm trying to think yes it is this chapter like she one of the most fascinating moves in this book I think is when, Uh, She tracks back to uh, that 1942 map that Japan Mm -hmm. uh, produced, the propaganda map that uh, showed their plan for, you know, the the, uh, East Asian uh, uh, cooperative sphere or um, however, whichever particular phrase you, you want to use for that, which was, of course, Japan's kind of imperialist idea of how to weirdly imperialist anti-imperialist right because the 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 arguing line becomes we are going to force uh the uh the westerners out right the british and the americans we are going to force them out and we will then consolidate uh, a kind of unified asian uh, uh you know block uh against these forces but also we the japanese empire uh, will be in control of basically everything, and so uh, it it is the map that is being printed that is a propaganda map for um, people in in other East Asian countries. Uh, it shows like you know here's uh, here's like this uh, country, and here's this country's flag, and there's a tiny little Japanese flag planted in that country, and that's just because like we're all in this together, right? Because this is our plan. <laughs> Notably there are places that are countries that are real countries at this point in time that do not get their own flags. They just have little Japanese flags because they're part of Japan and there is no reason to question that. Right. So uh, the, the, the cartoonish playful way that this information um, is presented when it is just, you know, a kind of, you know, it's a propagandistic script for uh, uh, justifying this kind of imperialism. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, she sort of, you know, reads that against uh, kind of the implicit logic of wanting to create something that will be bought everywhere but associated with nowhere.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But which nevertheless uh, gets to go back. So she reads uh, um, Prime Minister uh, Abe, right, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, as dressing up as Mario at the Olympics? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, at the Rio Olympics, I think. And so, and then kind of revealing, right? is a very kind of revelatory moment for Fickle that, um, you know, despite the fact that this kind of um, everywhere and nowhere cultural Japanese product, you know, the soft power approach to everything can kind of distribute, be distributed anywhere at any moment, right? And this is something that the Japanese right understands. Mm -hmm. At any moment could be uh, re-activated, as a kind of cultural signifier for Japaneseness, uh, mm-hmm. but a particular kind of uh, political strain of nationalist Japaneseness, um, uh, right? Because specifically,
1: you know, what the the Olympics thing where he dresses up as Mario, uh, like what that results in is a very like a, a meme that goes viral on I think like uh, Twitter in Japan. Mm-hmm. I think it's Japanese Twitter, um, yep. but uh, it's show it's someone saying like you know tagging Abe in and being like. I can't even remember exactly what it is that, uh, uh, is said, but, uh, the screenshot is of the Mario warp zone pipes and the, so it's Mario who is Abe, um, next to these three pipes. And instead of being labeled with the traditional Mario worlds, like the first one is like, uh, the prime minister's office, Uh, The second one is uh, Rio itself. And then I think the the third one is the Yasukuni shrine, which is uh, Mm. the the Japanese shrine to the soldiers lost during World War Two, who were like and like two war criminals, right to to the atrocities committed um, on uh, in in Manchuria and uh, mainland Asia.
0: So all of this is is about right. I, I, what I think is interesting about this chapter is it's it's a little bit sprawling in its argument. I mean, it really does go down a lot of rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. But the but I think I mean I read it as uh, like as complete of an elaboration of the politics of playing Pokemon Go is like one chapter could reasonably do. Mm-hmm. Meaning that she every time she hits a limit, and she's like, and this is what Pokemon Go does. Mm-hmm. And also here are the political implications of this part of Pokemon Go. And here are the political implications of this part of Pokemon Go, right? And so I, you know, I think it's meant, I think the chapter is meant to work as a kind of demonstration of uh here's where game studies would normally stop, right? Oh, interesting. Uh, AR and GPS are are, you know, that data's being harvested by these companies. Mm-hmm. And yet that has a political you know endpoint to it, right that kind of lands in uh, uh, Ludo Orientalism and techno Orientalism um, uh, or this kind of like question of the global distribution of Pokemon, right. It's not just that it is um, you know kind of being presented as just a generic product of Japan that is meant for every global audience and everyone can enjoy it. It eventually can get called home in particular ways. Which leads to a bizarre ending to this chapter. Uh-huh. It really, I, 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 I don't... It is the most charitable read of, of South Park I have ever, ever encountered.
1: Yeah, it's a very brief reading of South Park's uh, Chinpokomon episode from, like, the late 90s. I remember, like, watching this in, like, literally, like, I was still in elementary school um but if you aren't uh hip to what was on south park in the late 90s like uh the it's a parody of the pokemon craze that was starting at the time and the kids all get really into this new uh cool toy from japan the the chin pokemon which of course is a vulgar uh joke because chinpo means penis um oh really yep that's the joke (laughs) like wow Completely uh. changing my
0: whole evaluation of this now. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, but anyway, uh, the, yeah, the year the... 2000. Sorry, I was looking up. Oh, I'm sorry. 1999 is when Oof. this came out. Oof. Yeah, I know.
1: Yeah, so, like, uh, in, in a sort of... I, I feel like this is almost very paint-by-numbers for South Park, really. Um, it turns out that the toys are, like, mind-control devices that are training the children to become kamikaze pilots, and they are going to attack America from within. Uh, mm. Which, again, like... the the laminations on this thing (laughs) like the the soft power thing um the reactivation thing right that you were talking about but then also the way that uh racialization uh like the the argument of the enemy within that was behind uh the arguments for japanese internment um gets like spread out so that like these white children can become mind controlled uh to to serve the uh you know rebirth of of the Japanese empire or whatever um I it, think
0: they literally are serving emperor hirohito in the episode maybe yes that seems about right but yeah um i think that's it for this there there's a really cool uh or interesting um Critique of Jameson going on here that we don't really have to get into, and there's another one that happens in the next chapter. I think there's, i, I you know, I want, I, I'm curious in the terrifical um, you know, Jameson read, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I think that it's interesting that it kind, of, it comes up several times in this book. Um, very curious about, you know, a longer form critique um, of Jameson from from the the kind of question of play and the the um you know, discipline that, that, uh, fickle comes out of, but, uh, chapter six game over internet addiction, gold farming and the race card and a post-racial age. Mm-hmm. I was really, I started that as a, uh, like, a an arcade guy and I turned into the macho man, Randy Savage halfway <laughs> through.
1: Well, it's all good. Uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, this chapter as the title suggests, covers a couple of things, um sort of very interesting i think right out of the gate one of the uh sort of suggestions that fickle makes is that uh gaming becomes a kind of master metaphor for a lot of uh contemporary cultural problems um at the moment when uh china eclipses uh, the united states as um you know sort of a cultural power or seems poised to do so or whatever who knows how history is is are going to be written um but like the very real sense at least for the u.s that uh reality is somehow broken uh she says and Hmm. uh, games are going to help us fix it uh so there's a, a very sort of pointed um you know remark about uh the 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 optimist strain of of game studies and how game gamifying uh culture is going to help us fix problems Mm -hmm. Um, i would
0: simply gamify culture yeah
1: and uh (laughs) like that comes up right alongside suddenly well if we gamify culture doesn't that mean that we're all kind of like gambling addicts or game addicts or something or internet addicts and of course there is uh you know the DSM uh, five talks about uh, like it now lists internet. Is it internet or is it gambling or gaming addiction? It's internet Internet
0: gaming, internet gaming disorder. Okay.
1: Okay. So the DSM right lists that. And uh, of course there have been uh, a lot of publicized stories about uh, internet addiction and gaming addiction, specifically in China and sort of steps that the Chinese government has taken to uh, combat uh, like, this like phenomenon epidemic i don't i don't want to give it the word that term necessarily um but this this thing and uh the dsm5 curiously suggests that there might be biological or cultural issues at root or at the root of who gets addicted to uh the internet who gets addicted Hmm. to gaming um even Hmm. though i guess uh sort of by uh some stuff at fickle sites, right. Statistically, it might be the case that people are just as addicted to the internet and gaming and as miserable in the United States. But like the, the fact that the government makes, uh, outward proclamations or statements on the phenomenon in China becomes this way of talking about, well, again, right. The, the, the sort of like specter of, um, good old Orientalism or racism about, uh, the, the Chinese government, uh, you know, going too far or like the individuality is not respected in this society in the way that it is in our society, right? Individual choice or freedom or things like that. Um, it becomes a way for articulating a lot of those differences um, and re-articulating them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this kind of uh, morphs into or, or turns into a discussion uh, about Chinese gold farmers, uh, as the, the chapter title might suggest. Um and then a reading of uh a Cory Doctorow story, Onda's Game, mm-hmm. about Chinese gold farming. Um, and I don't know if it's super in our benefit to like go to the level of detail that Fickle does. I mean, it's a very detailed, uh, close literary analysis. Um, and uh, also of like the visual representation going on here too because it's in a comic book form at least part of it mm-hmm. um, I was unclear if the whole thing is a comic book or if there's a written story and a comic book it's, I, it's I, a I... written
1: story and a comic book which is what's interesting because she gets into like the differences of like when doctor O's original version of the story certain things are like this and then about mm-hmm. I think it's like maybe five to ten years later he there's the graphic novel version and certain things change to try to redress problems that become apparent in the first text, but then hmm. the second text also has its own problems.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so the, you know, uh, the logic around gold farmers, right, the moral panic around gold farmers, in case you were not around World of Warcraft at the time in which this mattered, this is like, what, 2006 or something? Mm-hmm. Uh, 2005, 2006. Um, uh, there's an, an immense, uh, there's a huge player base for World of Warcraft at this time. Um, there are people who are willing to go to outside channels in order to get gold to spend in the game, right? To buy equipment, items, whatever. Um, there becomes an emergent economy. This is something we talked about in our games of empire episode, if you're curious Mm -hmm. about that. Uh, but there becomes an emergent economy of people worldwide who sit in front of computers for low wages and grind gold in World of Warcraft and then put on platforms like eBay until it was banned and then other platforms outside of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a, a, a U.S. moral panic about it, right? I actually remember uh, uh, <laughs> someone that played World of Warcraft with uh, the epigra- uh, epigraph? epigraph for this chapter, the, th- the quotation at the beginning of the chapter, um is from the like uh, song parody machinima of, about oh. chinese gold farmer yeah. and i remember uh the person i played world of warcraft with regularly just singing it constantly Ugh. um so uh you know real strong sense memory of of uh anti gold farmer uh sentiment in in uh, locked away in my head there but um but but right so so she um, and so people are mad about it. Uh, they really strongly racialize this. Lisa Nakamura has written about this. We talked about that in our last episode, a brief amount because it wasn't in the book um, Cybertypes. Um and but then uh, the kind of maneuver here that Fickle makes is uh, attaching that uh, discourse from the early two thousands back to the same discourses that we, uh, encountered in the first chapter, mm-hmm. um, that it is just the resuscitation of many of these exact same ideas, um, and this kind of double standard or kind of double articulation of Chineseness in relationship to the game, right? They play the game too well, and they, they cheat at the
1: game at the same time, right? It's right. that kind of double logic. Right. It's like, uh, their way of playing the game is not the way you're supposed to play the game. And by playing the game, the way that they're playing it, you are actually ruining it for everyone else.
0: Mm-hmm. And so she then reads this core Dr. Rose story Onda's game as kind of Dr. Rose's own version of elaborating that argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately comes to, to, um, a critique of both Galloway's, uh, writing about Chinese gold farming and Dr. Rose, um, by calling them both essentially class reductionists. I yeah. mean, not essentially.
1: She says class reductionism. Right. I'm um, not taking I,
0: into account. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say just
1: right. in brief, right? Dr. Rose's story is about a girl who uh, gets roped into kind of like a group that goes around an MMO and like they, they kill gold farmers. Right. Like not literally kill them in real life, but they kill their characters so they can no longer farm gold. And then it turns out that. uh her little group of like gold farmer exterminators was just hired by another gold farming collective to eliminate the competition. So,
0: mm-hmm. um, yeah, and so so the the kind of turn of the story is, uh, you are in fact the thing that you were complaining about the whole time,
1: right? And that's um, uh, paralleled it- <laughs> against Galloway's argument about how we are all the gold farmers now.
0: Mm-hmm. And so you know, Fickle says, well, obviously. That's not true, because there's a strongly racialized uh you know element to this that is not um just reducible to the act of farming gold, but there's a whole kind of uh racial logic that exists around how the world treats a particular form of gold farmer um and uh, there's a really weird move in onda's game in which she the main character develops type two diabetes and so the Develops a skin disorder that uh, makes her darker, so she's becoming racialized. Yeah,
1: she's she's getting paid real money. Yeah, she's getting paid real money in in the story. She's getting paid real money as part of this like gold farmer extermination outfit, and then like she's using that money to buy more candy, and that's what gets her diabetes, and then that's what makes her skin sc- colors start to change. I have not read this story, but just hearing Fickle describe it as one of those things that's like. You know, hands to my forehead, what you did- you did write holy shit, holy shit,
0: holy shit, in your
1: notes i did yes,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems it's a bad move um it, you could really tell like that's a real science fiction moment, and again, this is another moment of kind of science fiction studies uh overlapping here, I guess, but Um, it's a real moment of like a science fiction writer being like, I've solved this thing. I'm going to get them. I'm going to tell them I'm going to show them and completely kind of missing, missing the mark on it. Um, and, uh, ultimately, right. I really like this quotation, uh, here for at the end of the book that I wrote down, because I really think it, it does a good job of talking about the kind of project of the book as well. She says, uh, zone 195, what we are witnessing here in this kind of elaboration of the system she's talking about, what we are witnessing here is the way that visual representation, narrative, and ludic theory mutually reinforce one another's racializing logic, Mm -hmm. right? And so that harkens all the way back to the beginning of the book that, um, uh, game studies that tries to separate all those different things out into, you know, um, uh, completely separate domains where you don't have any responsibility of talking about the other one will mm-hmm. never work. Um, and, and it does feel really good to me uh, to to see someone really plainly stating this. And I think that people have stated this plainly across the board, uh, especially in really new books for for the past couple years. But it always feels good when certainly in graduate school, I encountered way more uh, game studies work, you know, especially the fundamental kind of game studies work that we've read on the show, some of it. That basically is like always making wrong, you know, um wrong forum arguments. Like you might care about visual representation, but uh-uh uh you're talking about games, so you mm-hmm. can't talk about that. Um and it's really gratifying and just um I mean gratifying is maybe not the word the right word. It is hope inducing <laughs> uh that that's the better word. Um it is hope inducing to read someone just very plainly say, Look, if you want to grasp a real problem in the world, you can't have these weird methods. Um, fights anymore. It's not going to be, it's not going to lead you to a place where you can actually address these claims head on. Because mm-hmm. um, that, I mean, yes, I agree with that 100%, but I really like someone plainly stating it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Anything else here at the end of this? Uh, at the, the end of this chapter, it, it really is just a kind of a close reading of these um, the the kind of hangover of the the nineteenth century, early twentieth century theories. How that gets reenlivened in uh, contemporary discourse, and then a really close reading of the Cory Doctorow story to kind of work through how these game study scholars and then Doctorow's story just isn't doing a good enough job. Um, of addressing the real problems at work in the Chinese ness of Chinese gold farming. Right. Yeah.
1: No, I think that's really, that that is sort of the note that this ends on, sort of like Contra Galloway, who is, you know, sort of saying like it's actually similar to the kind of critique of universalism uh, that we might get out of um, Hosinga or Kawa. Uh, that, by when, when Galloway is saying that we are the gold farmers now, right. And saying that we are all kind of, uh, contained within this, uh, techno capitalist system, right. We're all kind of a part of this, you know, we all have our place in the circuit. Uh, that may be true, right. But there is, as, as I think you were getting at, right. There is a reason that when we talk about gold farmers, the kind of like way that that phrase always recurs is Chinese gold farmers. Mm Mm-hmm right like that because race is a part of that system and even like she gets into the uh some of the details here right like gold farmers are not even like exclusively a chinese phenomenon but nevertheless Mm -hmm. in kind of the gamer's popular imagination that's what they are
0: yeah absolutely um and the additional thing too i uh you know just to to harken it back she explicitly calls this a cyber type and Mm um um I'm I'm I feel confident that Lisa Nakamura in her writing on gold farming also calls it a cyber type but I, I don't know I can't remember off the top of my head it's been a long time since I've read that essay um, but uh, you know uh, drawing the direct linkage between those two kind of systems of thought cool awesome well
1: um, what do you think about this book in a broad sense Michael Um, I think it's pretty cool like I'm definitely going to be citing parts of this Uh. Uh. Uh, I think especially this book is exciting to me as someone who comes out of literary studies and, you know, was trying to trying to uh, bridge a gap throughout grad school between game studies and literary studies and not seeing work that was being produced that felt like was doing that. Right. I was like, yeah. how like, it, it's the, the grad student problem of I want to write a type of thing that doesn't seem to exist yet. <laughs> um. And seeing the way that this book uh, really covers a bunch of topics and can kind of read them closely together um, in that some of this is, you know, stories, some of its poems, um, but some of its games themselves and some of its more traditional uh, cultural studies objects, um, I think is, is really cool. And I think um, it's interesting for that reason. And, and I like I like that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I'm really struck by this book and, and basically all of the the really con- hyper contemporary books that that we have read. Um I basically since the show started, something that I have begun to think um that I don't think I I I don't think I had the language to 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 say it until, you know, finishing this book, but it really is that Game studies went through a phase of of uh, you know distinguishing itself from other fields, and it went through a phase of like hyper defining its object of of concern. Uh oh, here they are. Uh huh.
1: They're getting me. It's here Every they time. are. The ludologists. Every time. Uh-huh.
0: Um. And that happened, right? And there's been a lot of you know discussion about you know the way that that shook out, and particularly the kind of um, strong stances that people took and the way they argued those stances. Um, what really strikes me after reading this book is that it is less important to me at this point of strongly defining the object and more about talking about the, the context in which the object circulates Mm -hmm. Um, and, and where the object weirdly enough exceeds its boundaries. Um, Because, you know, at the, at the opening of the book, she says, um, you know, game study scholars have made a mistake in, talking less about they they talk about games qua games and rarely do they talk about representations of games and fiction mm-hmm. and i immediately i was like yeah because i don't care about representations of games and fiction and in fact i mean the book i'm working on very explicitly <laughs> is about not addressing that uh, particularly because there's already really a great monograph on that on that subject um but as i read the book i was like oh well, god i mean you kind of do have to, to at least ping off of these things in order to understand. Um, how we manipulate the object, right? We're we're giving the context of how it works by thinking about the way that it shows up in in narrativization, in other kinds of stories. So, so, you know, even in an intent even though I guess at the, at the level of, of speaking to the discipline in that book, it really kind of, you know, forced me to, to think about some conclusions I've already
1: come to myself. So it's so funny um, that you said that it is so funny because like her saying that at the beginning for me was, I was like, hell yeah, of course. Right. <laughs> I am you know, biased, right. Coming out of literary studies as well. I would love to talk about representations of games in fiction. Um, but sort of the, 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 point the takeaway from that for me right is the fact that and i think it's some it's a point that this book i think makes very well we talked about games before there was game studies right there were there were sort of yeah. ways that people talked about and used games that are worth uh including in this discipline
0: yeah and and i that's kind of the way that i uh, you know after reading the book and kind of thinking about it I, you know the way that i i think about it as a genre almost right that Uh, The academic monograph on games and the novel about games, what's interesting about them is not that, you know, I don't really care about the literary part because I'm just not a literary scholar and that's not what I'm into reading literature for generally. Um, is not the same kind of scholarly work as when I watch a movie or whatever, or play a video game. But what's interesting to me is that, that you know, the academic essay versus the short story, they're two different genre approaches to the question of games, like you're saying, right? Mm-hmm. We had different ways of talking about games before we had game studies. And one of those ways of talking about games is the novel or the play or, or the short story. And that I do think is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, you know, I don't think that's gonna, I'm, I'm uh, too close to the deadline for my own book to really course correct and change my whole <laughs> academic career. Uh, but certainly it is, it has, um, made me consider things a little bit more broadly than I had been considering before. i I'd, I'd been pretty sharply, uh, decided on this issue before, but after reading the book and after, thinking about the ways that you know you kind of can't understand um you know uh race and Asianness and games without kind of doing this double maneuver or it'd be harder to at least mm-hmm. um you know maybe you can't understand science fiction and games i'm not talking about science fiction's representations and games Bleh. <laughs> Bleh. that's a lot more work to do uh, but but uh you know certainly um certainly something that that you know changed my way of doing it so I say all that to say, you know, on this show, we try to be, like I said, at the beginning of the episode, we try to be pretty open about our modes of readership and our ways of thinking as readers. And, you know, that's something that impacted me as a reader that even wasn't necessarily even the main target of the book, but certainly made me think about it. Mm -hmm. I've forgotten what book we're doing next.
1: Uh, Next up, uh, I'm very excited to announce we'll be talking about Brenda Laurel's Computers as Theater.
0: We're going to read this, and it's going to be full of claims that computers in theater are nothing like one another. <laughs> it's going to be like something wild. No, I don't think it will be. Uh, yeah, I'm very excited about that, too. We, this was actually suggested, I think, to us by Carly Kasurik, who's, um, mm-hmm. who, whose book we read last year, I want to yeah. say. Uh, and um, uh, certainly, if, if we didn't read it, then then Kasurik is a big champion of Brenda Laurel's work, generally. And so um, I'm excited to dig into it. Um, we, we have posted a list of, of different things that are coming down the line in the Discord. If you're interested in that, check it out. But uh, And I've also, weirdly enough, um, uh, we, we made a, a slight commitment to talking about tabletop games later in the year and reading some books specifically on tabletop and physical or analog games or you know whatever i'm sure there are like deep terminological uh fights going on in that subfield that i just don't know anything about mm-hmm. um so if there are books that you want us to check out from you know around analog games that we uh that we might not know about some deep cuts things like that uh please let us know at ranged touch on twitter or in the discord You can find information about both of those in the description down below. Michael, where can people find you on the internet?
1: Uh, You can find me on Twitter at WarrenIsDead.
0: And you can go to Patreon.com to support the show. Um, Of course, you can listen to it for free, but if you support us, uh, you'll feel better. A hundred percent, your skin will will clear up you'll have shiny hair mm-hmm. um you will have a very wet nose mm-hmm. um you uh will have a sleek coat. I think I'm describing a dog. Am I describing a dog?
1: I mean, I think I would describe myself as having all of those things too so okay, and I'm uh, an owl, so okay, good um
0: so that's a weird thing we don't talk about enough is that you're just a an anthropomorphic owl,
1: yeah, no, it's very strange.
0: How does it feel to transition from uh, licking the Tootsie Pop to
1: getting a PhD in in English? Well, I only did the PhD because I thought there was candy at the center, so I'm pretty disappointed. Yeah.
0: Weirdly enough, they don't give you any candy once you uh,
1: defend that dissertation. No, I was really, (laughs) really I was standing out there in the hallway after my defense, like, waiting for my advisor to to come out with the the Tootsies. Mm -hmm. Nope on your
0: handler's shoulder <laughs> <laughs> you got a person who, anyway okay we're not, yeah. let's not get too deep in uh in the history here um yeah but you can go to patreon.com to support the show at three dollars a month you get access to our notes you can see uh you know all the page numbers and things we talked about a lot of stuff that we didn't get to like i said earlier in the episode this book goes deep on some stuff that we just don't have time to do even at two and a half hours so um, our next book is going to be um, um, Computers as Theater, Theater by Brenda Laurel, and uh, you'll hear that from us in one month. If you like the show, you should share the show. We don't spend any money on advertising, so if you enjoyed listening to it, if you enjoyed listening to any other episodes, please uh, give it a tweet. Tell some people what you liked about it. Post it in a Discord that you enjoyed. Um, anything like that. It would really help us out. We only spread by word of mouth. We have a, a lot of listeners that were really happy Uh, that we have but we would like to have more listeners it's always better for game study study buddies to be doing the job that's supposed to do and we uh um you know we we want to make sure people hear the show and get introduced to these ideas we should do one of those youtuber things where we're like our goal is to educate one million people on game studies (laughs) We'll we'll but, workshop that. Yeah. We'll think about it.
1: just educate 1 million people on game studies. You need something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Need a tighter hook.
0: 1 billion. What, <laughs> 1 billion served. <laughs> <laughs> I, but but speculatively with a question mark, 1 billion served. <laughs> That's our call to action.
1: <laughs> it's your choice whether or not we actually did our job. Mm, okay well i think that's the end of the episode michael what's the catchphrase Uh, until next time folks remember the social is predicated upon its exclusions